Welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. We might as well just tell everyone that you guys are coming to Florida end of mm-hmm. August, first weekend of September. Yeah. Um, Nick and Carla from Vital Strength Physiology. Hey, guys. Hey. What's up? Nick is sleep deprived. Yeah. He just had a baby. Yeah, little and baby AOS. Yeah. Congrats. That's big news. Everyone remembers Nick. So I did, what, what were you, episode like six, something like that? Five yeah, or six? Early on there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then now Carla's joining us. Because yeah, I actually I'm connected with Nick. I, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Because I actually connected with Nick first. And then through Nick, connected with Carla. And now they're like two of my favorite Canadians. And uh, your two favorite Canadians. That's right. That's right. Well, Lucas is Lucas is also Canadian. We've been mm-hmm. friends for like ten years, so he probably yeah. won't even listen to this. So it's okay. Um, is he in the states now? I think no. He was just here. He was just here in. I think he went to California oh, okay. to do like yeah. a little workshop um, yeah. with um, with DJ Murakami. Um, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I think they did like a little combined workshop. Um, but yeah, you guys are coming to teach a workshop, and we already sold tickets to to people, even though we haven't officially announced it yet. But this is the official announcement. Um, like I said, I connected with Nick a while back, um, and then through that, connected with Carla, and then we're all basically now communicate pretty much probably every single day. And um, I officially finally met them. You guys came to David's seminar, which was fantastic. And now you guys are coming to do your own because, should I say, I push you to do your own? Is that what kind of happened? <laughs> yep, I know you wanted to do it, but I push you guys to do your own because, um, you know, who am I? But I don't, I don't think actually people actually know, like, your resumes. <laughs> which are pretty pretty expensive not expensive extensive and quite impressive um so you know maybe we should uh let's start with carla and she can kind of tell us about herself and then we'll go to nick and then uh, we'll get into it okay so um okay so like my story starts in bc i'm from Kelowna, bc um grew up there playing every single sport and ended up doing volleyball for the last few years of living in Kelowna, beach volleyball and court volleyball. And I came to Calgary for volleyball nationals back in like 2006 or 2007. And I was like, oh my gosh, like University of Calgary, like Oval, it's very impressive. And the kinesiology department and everything, I was just like, this is so cool. And so it kind of piqued my interest in, in um calgary i already knew i wanted to go to a university that kind of did some kind of sports science kinesiology type thing um but that i guess set off my research and i ended up coming here and moving here in 2007 for school so that was my first four years in calgary i really always thought i'd go back to Kelowna because Kelowna is like i mean in some ways like beach town kind of like called Kelownafornia. It's got a beautiful lake. It's got wineries. It's got lots of sports, lots of activities. Um, and 
and it's just very very hot in the summer and so if you if you know anything about calgary it's like minus 30 to 40 in the winter versus Kelowna is like minus five minus 10 so um if you don't like winter sports and you don't like the cold why would you come to calgary but um the university of calgary is what uh, again kicked that off for me and then after finishing my undergraduate in kinesiology i started to pick up some like random jobs um those kind of led me to getting my um canadian society of exercise physiology certified exercise physiologist designation that's a mouthful ccep cep and started working in some labs started working in some gyms um, and all of that led me to working for the canadian sport institute in 2013 and that's where i met nick um so nick had been working there for i think at least three years by that point or so and we didn't work together much in the first year until I started my master's because I went back to school for my master's of kinesiology. And then I started working with the swim team and Nick was the head strength coach for the um, varsity swim team. And I was put as the assistant strength coach with Nick on that team. And so goes the journey even further. She, so she started off as my assistant and now she's my boss. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes. <laughs> yeah. True story. No, uh, we're both. That is that is a unique situation. Yeah. Very. But yeah, so Nick and I met then, and um, I guess I worked for the Canadian Sport Institute for just before my master's, and then during my master's, and then after my master's, I because I had you know dropped down to part time uh, work for a bunch of the sport teams and swim teams, a lot of the swim teams. So I kind of said, Hey, do you have any full-time hours for me again? I've done my master's ready to go. I'm smart now, you know, should hire me back. Um, and they were like, you know, we don't have any full-time positions left or, you know, available right now. Uh, but you can keep working like, you know, two or three hours a week for our teams if you want. Um, which I couldn't do because that's wasn't quite full time enough. So I ventured off to, um, another gym, they trained a lot of bobsledders and skeleton athletes. So that was my start into that world. Um, but one year after working with them, um, because both of the owners had their own kind of side gigs, that gym dissolved essentially um, when their lease was up. And so then without really wanting to, I sort of started to uh, rent a and lease space from another gym in Calgary because I needed to make some income and some of the athletes wanted to follow me over. And so vital strength and physiology, which I had created in 2012 or something like that between my two degrees for funsies, it had to kind of become the full-time thing. And then that leads us to here, I guess. So it's been a journey of moving to different gyms along the way, somewhere in there, Nick reached out and we were actually just going to write a, a book together was our initial intent. We're like, oh, hey, you know, we both got some similar um philosophies we both have some similar ideas um we were going to call the book and we're still technically working on it um gap analysis and so yeah so brought nick on we just kind of met for coffee we discussed training philosophies and things like that initially and then uh eventually nick needed a job and so i said you know i'm super busy with vital i'm fully waitlisted like i need help do you want to come on and so he did and then COVID hit and we went from super super busy to super super not busy and troubleshooting ways to um move some stuff to online training and fill our time and develop some other projects in the meantime so i think the gap analysis book is now like 
400 or 450 pages, mostly written during the pandemic. And now oh, it's backburnered again um, because it's mostly like kind of draft stuff. But um, one day we will finish it. And like a combined is, thesis, basically? It, yeah, it's kind of like a start to finish of like, how would you take somebody, uh, an athlete or someone, how would you take them and troubleshoot their training? Where would you start? How should you think about things? Um, I, mean, I don't remember all the chapter names, but... Yeah. What does GAP stand for? Something athlete performance or something? No, just GAP. Just GAP. Okay, cool. I'm sure Um, it could mean many things, I'm sure. But that kind of, yeah, it started from some of the stuff we chatted about last time uh, where basically through my experiences with speed skating and I mean, if we want to give a little bit more background, to people here. I did my undergrad in Kines. Um never really ran into Carla. I think we were maybe a year or two apart at that time. But as soon as I finished working, I started working for the Canadian Sport Institute. I'd done two um, sort of work terms with them in my last year at university. And it's surprising like what university doesn't prepare you for in terms of like actual kind of real world training or, or working with anyone. But just because I'd been a meathead my whole life and had experience training and doing different programs, they had a simple assignment in one of those classes that was like, you know, here's a football player. He's at this point in the season, he has this injury and this is his goals, like build a program. You had a class of, 30 students, like some who had zero experience training themselves ever. And, uh, some like myself and maybe one other person could write a program that actually made sense. And that's what got the attention of the, the sport Institute. And then, uh, uh, let me get a job with them kind of coming out of my degree. But, uh, pretty soon after I started that, the head strength and conditioning coach for speed skating was looking for an assistant so i got on with that and then because things were going well and he was kind of um on his way out uh to other endeavors uh with the sport institute pretty quickly i took on the lead role with the team and then ended up working through this with about three olympic quads with the speed skaters wow um and and at some point in there too, picked on the university swimmers after one of my friends had left that job. And I had this idea that I didn't want to get through like two or three quads. And then, you know, eventually like whether it was me wanting something different or the team wanting something different, I didn't want to get 10 to 12 years into things and not have experience training other athletes at that point. So I thought swimming would be a great opportunity to, to get like a a different variety in there and different challenges. Uh, but then that's where I met Carla and then where it comes into that gap analysis is, uh, towards the end there. And then we chatted about this story last time I had now before really getting into this eight years of experience where we had seeing sometimes we would have development athletes who could outlift the national team athletes 
and perform better than on the bike in the physiology lab. Not always the case, but it sometimes was. And then on the national team, sometimes like the best performing guys in the lab on the bike and in the weight room, they weren't the ones winning medals. So then for me as a strength coach, I was just starting to troubleshoot. Okay. If like the physiology is not so much the gap and the strength and power aren't the gaps, like at least how we measure it and look at it typically in the weight room, like how can I be of use to bridge the gap for these athletes? And that's when we started a pretty simple troubleshooting process that was like talking to the coach and saying, you know, what are these athletes doing technically that you think is holding them back or that's wrong? And, uh, you know, usually we'd get some kind of answer back. Well, I've told this athlete to do this a thousand times and they're still doing it. So I don't know what else I can do. And then myself and the physios just taking that athlete and be like, well, can they actually do what the coach wants them to do on a basic level? So like if the coach is telling them to get lower or to extend their leg and their push off more, if we put them in a table on the table and just like passively move their joints, like do their joints have that range of motion? Right. And sometimes the answer was no. Uh, so obviously if their joints don't have that range, they're not going to be able to do what the coach wants them to. And then sometimes they would have the passive range, but then you'd ask them to hold that position actively and they just wouldn't be able to do it for very long. And so it's, then it's like more of a strength or endurance question. So, okay, obviously they're not, um, training that quality on the ice well enough in their sport. So maybe we need drills to work on the passive mobility. Maybe we need some kind of drill in the work in the weight room to work on active strength or endurance in those positions and just troubleshooting it that way. And there really isn't like, it's a very simple process, but there's not many people out there who are like following that kind of thought process. Sadly, it's more, you get an athlete and they're like applying a cookie cutter periodization plan or, uh, just throwing some, you know, basic things at them in the weight room. And yeah, for sure. I think on a, like a, on a, like a mass level, that's definitely what's happening. I don't think many people actually follow like the scientific process when it comes to like no. training, training people, right? Like they don't observe first. They don't even observe first and foremost. They don't ask questions. They don't form a hypothesis. They don't test the hypothesis and then just keep revisiting this cycle. They just kind of take what they learned and they just blindly apply it and think, oh, it's automatically going to transfer. And if it does, great. I'm smart and blah, blah, blah. And if it doesn't, it's like, oh, it must be something wrong with them or whatever. You know what I mean? They don't really like, I don't think, I think that's what kind of separates good strength coaches and like probably kind of more of your yeah. traditional strength coach where they just assume that getting someone strong as possible is just going to instantly transfer to like the highest level of performance on the field or court or ice or whatever, right? Like they don't actually yeah. take the time to look at footage, look at the sp whatever sport, look at the movement, look at the patterns, look at the things. And then, you know, then you get into this whole like, oh, well, athletes will just self-organize and it's like, okay, but there are still technical aspects that are probably important. And if they can't 
you know, biomechanically, which is like our primary job as strength conditioning coaches is to address the biomechanics of the individual in front of us, right? Is to look and see, okay, do they have the options that we want them to access? Because if they don't, they're not going to self-organize. They're like, it's not an option. Therefore, they can't self-organize within that option, which obviously we want athletes to be able to self-organize because you can't think about things technically, like really when you're actually going full tilt and training. So it's like, how do we give them the options and expose their body to the options that maybe we see as more ideal, but it's like, I don't think, yeah, I, I think you're right. I don't think most people do that process yeah. at all. And you know, a, a good analogy I heard is that, you know, our body becomes most efficient or it becomes efficient that we do them what we do the most often. And so if you have like a river kind of carves a path and that gets deeper yeah. and deeper as it goes along, um, you if you want like if you get you can get good and efficient at something that's not necessarily what the ideal would be um yeah. and so you really have to put some like time and effort the other way to to address that yeah i think that's the hardest part too because there's a bit of subjectiveness right like yeah because there's obviously like high level athletes who do excel at the highest level in the non maybe oh, yeah. not, not in the technical model that's broadly accepted. Right. So that's like a whole nother conversation, but, um, yeah, it's a really, and you also have, uh, I mean, you also have the complete opposite problem where you have trainers, um, who focus on making individuals look very pretty, but they don't actually build up any capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, well, it's like the whole point, just you can take away from this is this is why this is not like a an out like it's an outcome based process but it's very much a process always it's it's you always have to be you have to continue the the process of observing test you know asking questions forming hypothesis testing the hypothesis over and over and over because like athletes change we change injury like there's just so many variables that come into play especially over what you said you worked with these athletes three or four quads, like, so 12 years, like there's going to be a lot of change happening. So you can't, you can't just assume what you did months ago, let alone, you know, or I mean, any of it, you can't assume what you did years ago is going to work or even months ago, or even weeks, weeks ago is going to work. You have to be like involved in the process. And I think that honestly, I, I like, I would definitely go on the record and say like most of our colleagues are just lazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then of course, like in, in, in the corporate sense, you know, a corporate or I don't know, I guess that's the best way, but like when you work for a big business or an organ, like a university is an organization, right? It's like most strength coaches, if they can show some sort of objective improvements in, you know, bench press or squad or whatever the case it is, oh, well, they're, they're getting stronger. So it's not me. Like the people at the top that are coming down and that are financing things, they're not, they're going to go, okay, yeah, you're doing your job. You know what I mean? And they just keep yeah. going on about their way. And that's why it's like, because and that's just like easy. And again, I think it just comes down to like, no one, I don't think most people are as observant as you two. And and then obviously like other, like other people within the kind of like network and circle that we interact in. Like, I, th I think that's just like one of the primary, <laughs> that's what makes you guys so good is that you just, you look at what's in front of you uh, with the combination of your extensive education and experience and things like that. Right. It's not like you just, it's not just one or the other. You have to like do both well. Yeah. And um, there were definitely, there's pros and cons to all the uh, 
objective and the data-based yeah. stuff out there and uh you know and and most like uh, high performance sporting facilities saying they're like bench press and their squat is is going up is not good enough anymore but uh you know we kind of replace that with force plates and other measures but then you end up with a similar similar scenario where a strength coach can say well this like their jump performance is related to their on ice or on the field performance and i made their jumps performance on the force plates go up by whatever five or ten percent so i did my job and then just kind of like wash their hands at that point like yeah. i keep doing what i'm doing and if i can make this metric improve like i don't have to worry about anything else yeah i mean then you get into the whole conversation of and maybe it will get us into some of the questions that we had planned for this but like sports specific and like general capacity like just general capacity as well right and like what is the, like that's always like a good conversation that's could always be its own podcast because it's like yeah sure bench press may not necessarily improve any one metric that you can record on the field but maybe it does like improve like you know i play rugby so like it definitely like, it definitely makes stiff arming people easier <laughs> yeah. but, but like no but no one's like no one's like it's not a metric that anyone bases like a good performance off of but and it's not even one probably people think about but like as a player i'm like oh yeah next time i like last game i stiff armed and they just felt easier and lighter and whatever but it's just like does it it obviously can improve it can improve your performance but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will Right. And yeah. I think like even me training like a lot of high level football players, like almost this entire high school team, like they all go D1 or whatever. You do always have just a mix of guys that it's like you have your strong guys. You have your just like freaky athletic guys that aren't very strong. You know, then you have like some that are freaky athletic and really strong. Then you have some that are just weak and not athletic. Like you just get the whole you kind of just get a whole mix, probably not at the level that you guys were trained, like training people at because you're already training like Olympic training center athletes and stuff. But I guess relatively, you're probably going to have more or less within that group of that population. Whereas high school is still like a lot of developmental stuff going on. But um, I mean, that never, that never ends either, but even if yeah, you and like, become like a pro, but. And like, that's what I kind of like about, um, I mean, we don't just work with elite athletes now, but I like right. the position we're in now because it's a little bit more individual. Like we don't have, we have our swim team and the Dinos women's hockey team for our two team-based ones. But other than that, we're mo mostly working with like one-on-one -on -one people and really get to kind of troubleshoot that yeah. on a daily basis, weekly, ba weekly basis. So you can kind of tailor it a little bit more and yeah. kind of use your thinking cap a little bit more. And even for like the endurance athletes that I train and my other two coaches train um, online, there's a lot more uh you know troubleshooting on the daily and the weekly basis with their training even if they're remote athletes because we can because it's right. not just a hundred athletes on the same program it's like literally a different program for each person and variations of that weekly um for each person so it's it's fun because yeah you really get to i don't know use your brain a little bit more troubleshooting is really fun yeah i mean i think like that's why i like what I do because I'm, I like to troubleshoot. I like to solve problems. Like that's what stimulates me. Right. Is like, is like, I feel like the, when you're training people, you're kind of putting together a puzzle, 
right? Like, you know, you, you know, the outcome sort of is going to look like, but you know, maybe you put this corner together first and you start building off that, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's bits and pieces and you're just constantly troubleshooting issues and not necessarily, not necessarily like issues in terms of just injury. I mean, yeah, of course it's multifaceted, but you're, you're always kind of dealing with different things too, which is fun because, you know, even if you get like a biased population, which a lot of people fall into that, there's even within a, a biased population, you can still get a lot of individuality come into play, I think. But um, how did you guys, the one, because just so people know, why don't we talk about, okay, so you guys are coming, the, the official dates are June 1st and 2nd, right? Is that what we decided um, on? September. September oh, 2nd Jesus. and 3rd? I think Gosh, that's yeah. the Saturday. September. Sunday, not June. Like that. Not <laughs> I don't June. Know not where my head is. No, not last month. September 1st and 2nd. Why don't you guys talk about what the the basis of the seminar is going to be? Because, well, let me kind of, so we had David Gray. He came wonderful. Well, for me, he came wonderful seminar. And then Angus followed that. And then Ian followed, Ian Marco followed that. All very good seminars, all very, like, obviously there's a lot of overlap within the network, but there were a lot of um, individual perspectives and approaches. Um, some of the seminars were a little bit more um, theoretical. They all had a bit of theory and practical, but they all had like a different, a little bit more practical, a little bit less theory and, and vice versa. And then obviously each person had their own spin on it. Um, you know, but this one's going to be a little different. And it's certainly different for me because, you know, basically going from sport to predominantly resistance training as like my, my primary sport, like obviously and profession for the last like decade. Um, and then now returning to sport over the, over the past year, going back to rugby, um, you know, for me being primarily focused on resistance training, I've always done some sort of like cardiovascular training, at least for fun, you know, bike riding or whatever. I've never, I haven't really, like, I'll be honest and say, I haven't really focused on it as like a primary um, adaptation that I'm like trying to improve. Right. But um, obviously getting back into rugby and the demands of like such a, uh, it isn't like people think rugby and they think contact and they be, they think big guys and they think football. But I actually would say that it's probably, honestly, it's more of an aerobic sport. Ironically, it's very similar to soccer. Um, where you play 80, 90 minutes, 80 minutes. Um, and it's, you're like constantly most like, you know, at least 10 of the 15 guys are on the field the entire time. So you will play a full 80 minute game. So not only are you, is it an aerobic sport, depending on your position, it is also anaerobic because some of the guys are need to be bigger, stronger, more powerful, faster, and they need to last the 80 minutes. So my training scope has changed. Therefore my interest personally in training has changed. And through that, I realized that training for any sort of cardiovascular endurance is certainly a weak spot of mind professionally. And mm -hmm. knowing just the strength conditioning field, it is a weak spot for most strength and conditioning coaches. Ironically, being that strength and conditioning is part of the title most strength conditioning coaches really only know strength and they don't really know conditioning well. Um, I think they know basics, right? Like I know basics, like, okay, you know, if I want to do some 
I know what quote unquote zone two, like easy, moderate, steady state cardio. I know how to do that, right? It's pretty straightforward. Hop on a hop on a you know modality of your choice that you can sustain for a great a greater period of time and just have at it, right? But there are there are intricacies and specifics when it comes to training it and programming it that I think a lot of people just don't know unless you're in that circle. So I guess where I'm going with this is that is what the primary focus of this seminar is going to be because selfishly, I was like, how do you train this stuff? How do you program this stuff? Because if you ask most people, oh, I want to learn how to run a mile. I want to run a faster mile time. What are they going to instinctually do? They're going to go out every day and they're just going to run a mile and they're going to try to run it faster every single time, right? So, and obviously that may work for like an, an acute period of time, like just obviously they're going to get faster and whatever. But when it really comes down to training endurance athletes um, or just training for that quality in general, I, I really just don't think a lot of people know how to do it unless you're in that circle. And it's, I find it to be similar to sort of like, or the way it used to be like gymnastics or martial arts or dance, whereas a lot of it is kind of traditionally taught if you're in that circle. Otherwise, where do you even get really get access to that kind of information? You know what I mean? Because right. um, even I, I interviewed one guy before who was an ultra guy, and I was even shocked by what I learned through his training because I assumed, oh, you know, he runs 100-mile like ultra marathons. I'm like, that's insane. So how many mileage... How much mileage you put in a week on your feet and it was actually less than i thought because he fills the gap with biking and swimming and other things too but in, we can get into that but i just realized through this process i didn't really know a lot and of course even just being back in this circle even a lot of sport coaches i'm even because i'm even training high school soccer too and it's the coaches are just so like they're how do you tr how do you actually improve the capacity of their ability to perform the sport well their answer generally is just like obliterate their athletes right like just do as much as conditioning as possible and it's like even this coach is like yeah if they're not like crawling out of the gym it's not like a good workout to them right and of course like as a contractor i kind of have a little bit more freedom to just kind of be like we're going to do what i say because i'm a contractor but at the same time you're still kind of at the mercy of uh their expectation of what their athletes should be getting which is i through this process kind of realized why i always worked in private industry and i never worked for or like schools or corporations because I just realized how much they don't know, but they think they know. And I'm sure they know, he knows a lot about soccer, obviously, but they don't really understand the, like the actual physiology. physiology right. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, like anything is better than nothing. And that's like, ultimately the discussion is like, sure, they're going to get some, something that maybe like that could be argued too, of course, because yeah. you're talking about just accumulating fatigue, but, but just generally like, okay, more movement, more conditioning, like it can be good and it can have a good outcome, but I think it also just becomes survivorship bias. Some people are just going to be able to get through it and others won't, and it will potentially fatigue them and then injure them and, you know, whatever, yeah. but we can get into all that and I'll let you guys kind of take it from here. Um, because I think this will kind of lead us into not only the questions we have, um, here, but, or the topics that we wanted to cover, but also just what the seminar is going to be about. Yeah. And like that, I guess, is why we are calling it the conditioning workshop. Um, it's not like the running conditioning shop, the rugby one or the soccer one. We're going to try to yeah. make it, uh, you know, principles based enough that you can take away um, how you should maybe look at conditioning 
for your own sport of rugby and maybe how a runner should condition for their level of running and maybe how right. Nick can condition himself. Um, so we're going to try to make it yeah, broad enough that sort of any sport coach or I guess even an individual that's curious about how to do it themselves could attend and sort of have like some understanding of how to do the research, uh, like basic research of like what is required for that sport, how to do the basic testing for how you would figure out if the person is like, again, there's a gap between what is needed for the sport and then what they have currently. And then we want to, you know, go into a bit of the physiology, at least the basics so that people understand what they're training and how they're training and why they're training that. Um, but again, with another big emphasis on the workshop being kind of gait and uh, cycling and running and walking gait, um, because A, I don't think it's like really being done that well out there. And I kind of think of it as like a squat analogy. Like if you were going to go program squats to one of your athletes or on your online platform, um, you would probably want to see like how the person is squatting. Yeah. Um, before you load them up with a shit ton of volume of squats, you, you'd kind of want to just check it out. Like, how is it looking in general? And it tends to be in running, um, and in conditioning in general, it's sort of, it's sort of like a afterthought. It's like, here's all the conditioning volume I want you to do. Uh, no idea how your gait looks. Don't care. Don't know what to look for. And this is not even just at like, uh, a strength and conditioning coach level, but it's even at the track and field level, like um yeah higher sport levels um it's like conditioning first volume first um not sure what to look for and so we kind of want to flip that for a second in the workshop and first look at gait and teach kind of a model to understand things by um teach some ways uh, we'll have like a ton of video examples we're gonna you know do practical examples within people attending the workshop and then figuring out what kind of exercises could we do to troubleshoot this make this a little bit better um before we go about being comfortable adding a ton of volume to that um because nick mentioned it quickly earlier but you know the common the common way of doing things like i already said is just uh let's go for it let's like crush you with yeah. like squat volume even but like let's crush yeah. you with running volume and hope you survive versus well i guess the opposite is true too or like i'm gonna have this beautiful technical gait model and until you hit that i'm not gonna let you do any training volume and, right. and so then their physiology weans in the meantime actually this is really common in sprinters i feel like too but um they're you know their actual um physiology weans maybe their speed weans maybe they take a cut those ways um and maybe they never develop like the most perfect model um yeah but then you kind of need to find a mix of the two right it's almost like a bit of gatekeeping which i think a lot of people who sell models or like tactical models it's always in there like there's always some sort of gatekeeping um in terms of like you're not allowed to do x until it looks exactly like this when of course like the way technique can be based on so many different things right it can be based on like i said i'll let you guys kind of get into that but it's and then maybe you even just like then the problem even in the sprinting world like track and field i think is so hard to follow because if you look at all the top like they all it's like they all kind of have similar but then they also just have wildly different models and techniques like this you know this one should you should be more rigid or you should be more fluid and it's like you just it's like oh my god how do you how do you even know like 
which is right and which is wrong. And then of course, like the conversation I've had with a few people is then you start to look at the highest level of athletes and you're going to see variability in like technique and execution. Like you think if you look close enough and you have an eye enough, you're going to see obviously um, like core principles, commonalities as well, but you have to also understand that you're also going to see variability. So it's like a hard thing to really, because I think everybody just wants to be spoon fed answers or like spoon fed things where like, this is just the hard line. It's black and white. And this is what I have to look for in every single person that I come across. And then it's like, you're only going to service 50% of the people that you deal with because of, you know, for whatever reason, you know, it's just tends to be the way it falls, but anyways. Yeah. And Carlos had some good recorded conversations with a track coach, Les Gramantic recently, um, who she's worked with for a long time. Do you want to give a bit of Les's background here? Yeah. So Les is about, I think he's 71 or 72 years old. Um, He went to the Olympics for pole vault when he was something like 25. Um, And then a whole series of things. He's like Eastern European kind of guy, did a master's in physical education out there. And then a whole series of things. Maybe uh, like, what did they have to do for their master's? Oh yeah. And like a little, this is in some of the interviews I'll be posting on our blog, but super funny. So, um, for this physical education masters back in the day, it was super, super practical based and not as based and not as research based. So every day for like four hours, they'd be out on the track, like learning how to coach running or learning how to coach a proper throw. And then people in the class, you know, practicing a javelin throw or something. And then them as a class, like breaking down that technique and figuring out how to make it better. And that was, that was four hours a day of two years of his master's. And so the cool thing about that is it's so different than the technical or than the masters say that I did just now or the masters that are happening now. Was it a heptathlon to you? Yeah, I was, I was going to say like, so at the end of the two year masters to pass, you needed to do a full heptathlon. Um, and you had to score, I think it was like 5,500 points, which is quite a lot actually for, um, for like a good score. Um, and you, that there was no exceptions. So I said to Les, like, was there some kids that like really struggled with that, that weren't that athletic doing this masters? And he was like, oh yeah. And like, they would have to, you know, train really hard to be able to do the events. Cause a heptathlon is like two running events, Five, high right? jump, long jump. It's seven. Oh, seven. Um, yeah. Seven. Uh, it involves hurdles it involves javelin shot put. And so there's like a lot of technique, especially with even just the high jump component. Or was it a decathlon? Now I'm second guessing myself. It was a decathlon because oh, it was there, a decathlon. Was, there was high or not just high jump. There was um pole vault and I can't believe well. that they were having to do a decathlon. Yeah. So anyways, less, um, that's his like master's training and something led him to Canada along the way. And now he's been coaching in Canada, track and field athletes for, you know, the better part of his life. Um, he's gone to probably every single Olympics since like, 1970 um wow and he's really involved in like our sports schools in calgary and he's really involved in a lot of the sport programs in general he still coaches like some bobsled some skeleton um some um like swimming type sports and just he does a ton of different things but i always like talking with him because he's had so many years under his belt of troubleshooting and sort of distilling information that when you ask him something like, oh, should we use sleds in our sprinting today? And he just goes, no. 
and you're like, can you explain why? He's like, it's obvious. <laughs> and so I had to like sit down with him for all these interviews. So he's like anti sleds and sprinting, huh? No, not necessarily. But like on a given on. day, if you ask him a question in and you're at the track with him, for example, like, hey, Les, should we do this right now? And he'll just say no. Or he'll like look across the track like, oh, they're doing hamstring sweeps. That's stupid and terrible. And you kind of want to dive into like, well, why do you think that? And it just requires hours and hours of sitting down with him to like. It's like old man that. stories, you know? Yeah. Like 50 just, plus years of fucking experience. But That's yeah, insane. I mean, part of like you, you had remind me, Carla had asked him a question along the lines of like, you know, if you see that, what do you think about this technical thing in an elite athlete? And he'll have the answer of like, oh, you know, people get so obsessed with like, um, those standout individuals and like their idiosyncrasies and you shouldn't put too much focus on that. But then Carla followed up like, well, what if you see these commonalities among a bunch of the top performers? And he's like, Oh yeah, well, obviously then focus on that. Do that. Get, yeah, yeah. Get attention to it. It seems yeah. obvious. And, right? I, yeah. and I, I, I also just feel like, so I've been trying to figure this stuff out for a long time. So has Nick and then so have we together. But there's a lot of um, sprint models out there that you can search online, but a lot of them are just, say, just the sprinting mechanics or just like kind of within the 100 meter context. There's a lot out there, but it's almost all from the side view um, and it's not from other views and it's not at other speeds and it's not uh, it's not like a what if you see this, should you do this? It's very much like a here's what you should see the end. Here's what you like, should no yeah. troubleshooting <laughs> no like figuring out maybe if there's exercises you should do or you should avoid and so that has become our obsession <laughs> yeah and then um even there's some labs locally that do like uh they're kind of running clinics and so they get the kind of the clinical population of someone has like hip pain or knee pain or foot pain or whatever when they're running and they go and get their gait analyzed and we've, you know, had clients come to us who've had those reports done. And it could be a, a really nice analysis of what the clinic thinks is wrong. But then often the prescription is like, uh, like mini band clamshells. Uh, the same and, thing for anything you have wrong on your whole report. It's like, oh, yeah. this is the protocol we use. Here you go. Yeah. And uh, maybe it like, and I, I think there is some research where they do show improvements with simple things like that. But then it's just been our experience that there's a big gap between improving someone's running form or what you think might be wrong with it and doing like a very detached kind of strength exercise like that. There's just a lot of problems with research, how it's like, how it's organized, how the population they use, what they're looking at, the measurements. There's just like so many things wrong with the actual practice. Like in, in anyone who's like truly is a sports scientist will say that. Like there's just a lot of issues with adapting scientific sports like research to to like practical popular, like like actual practical. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, like just even the one that, that every... That. Yeah, I mean, just even the one that everyone's Brett's Contreras is one that he just did yeah, with yeah. the hip thrust and the squats. It's like, again, it's just a useless study because not only is like, does it really probably not matter, but it's like, then if you actually dig into the data of like how things were measured and what was looked at, and you're like, oh, it's like 
you know, something, I think one of the main points was like, oh, well, you know, squat depth is like probably an important thing to consider. And like this, there was no formal metrics on knee flexion or hip flexion. And basically they were like, well, we just told every, you know, it's, it's an untrained population, by the way. And they're like, oh, we just told everyone to squat to death, like the deepest they could. So I don't know about you guys, but walk, walk into any commercial gym and look at untrained population squatting to depth. And it's like, it's, it's not what you would expect to like, if you know what I mean? It's not full depth. And so yeah. it's just, there's so many wrongs with data mining, like how they collect the data, who they're collecting the data on the pop, the size of the population, the duration that it's like, okay, cool. You get, you might get some information, but it's, it's and generally not practical. And there's like, that's kind of mirrored in some of the gate research where it's like, oh, we studied 500 runners and we found no commonalities that'll make them all injured. And it's like, I'm thinking of Doc, one of the physiologists, yeah. like this amazing physiologist who's also probably like less his age. And he would always talk about in our masters, like not looking at the averages of these research studies, but looking at the outliers. Like, well, why did this one person get weaker when we gave him five by five squats for 10 weeks? Or why did this person get way, 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 way better um, when we gave them sprint intervals, but like the average kind of gets washed out for like yeah. what actually happens. And so like, I, I'll see these, yeah, big, like big research analysis papers or meta analyses. And it's like, oh, there's like no commonalities in someone's gait that's going to make them injured. It's like, okay, well, you get someone who's already injured. What are you going to do with them? Are you just going to say like nothing, nothing about their gait isn't probably whatever, or are you going to kind of take into account that if they land with a forefoot strike, it's going to overload certain muscles. And if they land with a heel strike, it's going to load over certain, like overload certain muscles. And they have this specific history and they have this specific injury that you're dealing with right now. Can you use some of these like pieces of information and make a very individualized strategy rather than just being like, oh, well, research says nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, you know, and then it's like, we all know that like untrained population responds to anything. So why is this like, why, why aren't we just throwing this study out to begin with? Because it's like, and then you go, okay, well, why don't we train? Why don't we study trained people? It's like, because honestly, trained people are incredibly expensive because they, the risk to them, like teetering with what they typically knows works for them is it like, you're going to have to make it very worth, like you have to make it worthwhile for them in the, in the, in the manner of like a lot of money because they're like, oh, you want me to take eight weeks? 10, 12 weeks off training just to like test your hypothesis. It's like, it's going to cost a lot of money. And most mm -hmm. like any high performing athletes, not going to do that because there's too much on the line in terms of, you know, like they're already doing probably a lot of things that they believe in. They feel that it worked for them. It's just not worth it to them to be like, yeah, give me 40 grand and I'll just, you know, potentially throw my Olympic trial out the fucking window or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just not worth it to them. So then it's like, and that's a whole other like ethical discussion in terms of like, why are we even doing it in the first place? Because, you know, <laughs> I was going to say that brings us to like kind of one of the misconceptions of conditioning is um, that a lot of the elite endurance training studies actually have been like, or like cross-sectional research. So it's like, let's take this big group of biathletes and let's just like Take, we're not going to change, we're not going to, you know, split them up into a control group and this training group because they won't change their training for you anyways. No. Let's just take a cross section of like their training journals. Let's look at what they've been doing. And oh, weird. It looks like they've been doing 80-20, like 80% of the time spent at really, really low intensities, 
and 20% of the time spent at really high intensities. And that's kind of where the 80-20 rule kind of has come about in endurance training. Um, and it's not necessarily because they have, they've done some studies where they kind of compare that to other modes or other different divisions. Um, but it's not, I mean, it just comes from cross-section. So a misconception is that, well, because the elitist athlete did it this way, I need to do it that way too. It's like, whoa, 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 you just started running for the first time. Like you probably don't need maybe, maybe depending on your schedule, you need only high intensity or maybe depending on your schedule, you need only low intensity, depending on your injuries, how you're moving, you know, scheduling all these things. Don't worry too much about what this elite athlete's doing. Let's, you know, let's troubleshoot this a little bit better. Right. Right. Well, that's kind of where the 10K steps a day came from, too. Wasn't it like a cross-sectional like data collection of like uh, like out of Japan or something? And they just, they just, wasn't it something like they just took the average from something and they're like, oh, they all happen to kind of just walk 10,000 steps a day. So that's like the perfect marker for us from a health perspective is like, oh, get your 10,000 steps in a day. And like, obviously, like if you go from sedentary to 10,000 steps, like it's going to be better for you. But like, where does that number even come from? And like, why is it 10,000 steps? And then if you actually look at where they got that number from it's kind of a similar situation i think they just like it was like cross-sectional information of like some something like that i could be off on the information but i know it was very similar in terms of like it's honestly they just kind of a random number that they picked that based on some population that happened to walk 10,000 average 10,000 steps as a population a day and because of that they had leaner body mass and this and that and the other and they just based on that information okay. it's like everyone should walk 10,000 steps a day it's like okay it's not like not bad advice Maybe, but at yeah. the same time it's just like you have to just deep dig a little deeper into where does that information come from? Where does that metric come from? Right. Like why 10,000? So, yeah. And I know like there's uh the rugby strength coach always kind of poo poos on that. Cause he's like, if you're like a relatively fit person, uh, walking is not a stimulus for you. <laughs> he's like, I can't get my heart rate up at all with walking. And so, you know, 10,000 steps for someone who's super untrained might be a big stimulus and 10,000 steps for someone who is fit, like one of the three of us, yeah. like a walk is a walk. It's not training. It's though. Yeah. It's not, it's not enough. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I kind of like to be a little critical of, you know, what I see sometimes online is like, oh, I went for like my walk for my zone too. It's like, well, was that enough though? Was that <laughs> maybe for again? like someone, Sally, who works like an insurance job and hasn't like moved in like 15 years. Yeah. It probably is zone <laughs> too. Right. Cause she probably can't even walk a mile with like literally going out of breath, but yeah, it, it's, I actually heard something interesting. Maybe you guys, I can't remember where I heard this, where I heard it, but maybe this is like, it was an interesting point and I didn't even see where they got the information from, but somebody said that the average human actually has enough or has a, has like a good VO2 max. Like the average population human actually has good VO2 max. Like that's like relative that they would be able to run um, or like do endurance based sports. The issue is not necessarily VO2 max for these people. It's, it's actually just like the actual tissue capacity of like running for that long. So it's like the average human actually has relatively good VO2 max to be able to like to partake in an endurance. Does that make sense? Like, like enough VO2 yeah. max, like, it, and I guess his point was that it's actually like the, the actual tissue physiology adaptation that is probably more important to most, like VO2 max doesn't change that much. Like it takes actually VO2 max actually take, apparently takes 
a lot of effort to change like in any significant manner. Right. So like, he's like, I guess his point was just saying that not that it's not important. It's just that really it comes down like for most people, endurance stuff comes down to like tissue resiliency. Like can, you know, it's, it's not actually VO2 max being a limiter, I guess is, is the, was the way it was. Yeah. Which I think that's how it was presented. Was that VO2 max is not necessarily the limiter for most people. It's, it's tissue capacity. I guess it depends on what you're trying to accomplish because VO2 max is like a really good indicator of your health and how, you know, how easy it is for you to die. And so uh, the average person, I would say, is pretty easy to kill because they aren't that fit and they will develop cardiovascular disease. So it depends on where you're taking the average, I guess, too. But um, it does take a lot of training to to change your VO2 max and fitter people uh, with more training under their belt will have a higher VO2 max. And that is predictive of um, you know, your, your health and good blood pressure and all those things. And those numbers tend to decrease over time. Um, probably cause most people tend to stop training stop over training. time. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it just, it just depends. Like there's probably a tissue, um, quality piece to that. Or like, if you're going to go try running 20 K, like you probably have a VO2 that could somewhat support that if you're running slowly, but your yeah, your Achilles or your whatever might blow out in the meantime. But um, most people don't have a good VO2 max, I would say, on average. Yeah, I guess if yeah. you're, I mean, the mean population, especially in the United States, is just not healthy, right? So it's just mm-hmm. a bad, it's just a bad population to compare to. Period. Unfortunately, that's what our entire health guidelines and standards are based upon, which is like such a bizarre thing to to standardize but but let's let's standardize the unhealthiest people in the world (laughs) like okay that makes a lot of sense um but i guess this is like misconceptions of of conditioning right here's the biggest one that i hear your sport is enough and we can just say sport because sport is going to include whatever your sport is so whether it's rugby or football or swimming or cycling or running or hockey like playing your sport is enough probably the number one misconception i would think amongst not only athletes like oh like i definitely know i love my rugby teammates but they just think showing up and playing and going to practice is like enough right um but would you say that's probably one of the top misconceptions of 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 like training conditioning is just saying that oh my like just playing my sport is enough you want to take this for me? <laughs> you can start off. But. Um, I would say that that probably is one of the top ones. Um, and I guess as with a lot of things, like it depends. Like or trying let to me let me rephrase that. Yeah, I was gonna say let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that because it's obviously probably enough to play, right? Yeah, sure. But is happen. it enough to make you better or one of the best? I would say like no. I would say like why, that, why don't professional boxers just do all their cardiovascular training for what? 12 rounds of what is it? A minute, two minutes. So why is it? Why, so why does it? Yeah. Three minutes. So why is it? Why is it everything that they do cardiovascular wise? Why is it that they inherently don't go? Okay. I'm going to run today. So I'm going to set a timer for three minutes and I'm going to run for three minutes and then I'm going to take a 30 second break and then I'm going to run again for three minutes and then I'm going to take a 30 second break and then I'm going to, and they do that 12 times in a row for everything they do. If that was like how you became the best boxer in the world in terms of like actual cardiovascular conditioning, why is it that they 
always wake up, you always see Floyd Mayweather or whoever they're up at 5 a.m. crack of dawn, you know, Mike Tyson, and they're going out and they're running 10 miles, 15 miles. You know, it's like, they don't have to yeah. do that for boxing. Like they, they don't run 15 miles as a boxer. So why are they doing that? Right. Yeah. And I feel like this kind of comes back to like, um, well, we haven't talked about it specifically, but the 80, 20 rule that kind of comes about in endurance training. Um, but also is just referred to usually as like a polarized model of training where a lot of your training is done at low intensities and a lot of your, or a little bit of your training is done at high intensities. Um, but like the best way to develop the aerobic system is not through training like that. Like boxing is two minutes on one minute off or something like that. Something like that. Rounds. We're not boxers, so we don't know the specifics. Well, yeah. <laughs> so we can kind of like take some clues from the endurance side of things. Like, is that how the best endurance athletes train? No. And then you can take some clues from like the sprinting side of things. Like, how do you get faster? Well, the like sprinters have those qualities. So we can kind of take some clues from that. And then because something like boxing or maybe like rugby as our first example is sort of like a combination of those things. It's a little bit of the speed and power requirements of like the characteristic of in physiology, like the ATP PCR system or the phosphocreatine system for producing energy um, is needed in that sport. And then there's also like a big aerobic component, um, yeah. like oxidative metabolism component of rugby. And so uh, the only, the third, you know, energy source is anaerobic glycolysis. And that's sort of more of that, like two minute on one minute off or 30 second, like short rest, right. high power kind of intervals of like, that's characteristic of the actual, um, like sport of boxing. Um, but we can kind of take clues and kind of apply that polarized kind of training model. And probably the best way to train is going to be, like more of that polarized side of things like long slow stuff that really develops your oxidative system and then sometimes in the year doing or maybe concurrently we'll see but uh doing that like speed training power training um to best develop that energy system and then probably as you approach the season for uh boxing i guess as the example you probably do want to do some specific intervals uh, similar to that, which is a little more glycolytic and a little bit more kind of burny and, um, pukey feeling just to prep you and like turn on some of the enzymes that would help with that process right at the end. Like but lactic acid tolerance type stuff, right? Type training. Yeah. yeah. And because those adaptations are really short lived, like you're turning on the enzymes really quick. And then if you don't train that system, they'll fade. You don't have to do it all year round. You can just do it right before those uh, qualities are needed in season, but because they also accumulate tons of fatigue and the adaptation is short-lived, you don't need to do it all year round. We can train more a certain other way the rest of the year. Mm. I'll let Ben in here. So one validation for the easy training for me was just uh, getting adaptations in the heart itself. And so, um, and our physiologists with speed skating like to talk about this, but as you, as your heart rate goes up, like, or your cardiac output is going up, part of that is your stroke volume. So like your heart is filling with more blood each beat. And that has sort of like a resistance training effect on the heart. So when it's right. that chamber fills up with more blood, it gets to contract against more resistance and then develops the heart musculature that way that plateaus at a certain 
heart rate or percentage of your VO2 max. And so most of the time we just kind of simplify things with a heart rate of about 140 beats a minute. And so kind of around and below that is when you're actually getting the best training for your heart in that regard. And a lot of times with these sports, they're just, uh, they're too intense where you're working like above that range too much. And speed skating was one example. We're just being in those low positions. The heart rate gets too high. They get too anaerobic and they just can't get the easy training in on the ice and, and do it in any kind of technical way. Maybe if they're like standing up and skating, but, uh, so they do a lot of training on the bike and a little bit running outside of that, um, so that they can get those like zone one and zone two adaptations that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Right. And imagine that can be the case in other sports too, with like quick intense belts, um, where you're just not, um, you're just not accumulating enough volume in the easy ranges yeah. to really get that polarized training effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I can imagine in speed skating, like to be so low, it's like basically sitting in like a squat, right? There's so much like muscular yeah. tension and, and like that you have to hold while also skating <laughs> for speed. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's going to be, fatiguing so it's like hard to hold that specific position for long enough to like you said acquire the actual like physiological adaptations of like cardiovascular endurance just because the position itself is so physically demanding that they can't they physically can't hold so so do you find that to be pretty common though right like it almost seems like i think people overthink a lot of this like zone two because it's like they're almost self-regulating in a way like it's like how do i know i'm doing it well can you do it for 30 minutes straight it's like no well then it's not low enough effort you know what i mean or 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 like well can you only you know can you only do it for a minute at a time 30 seconds at a time yeah well then you know it's like high intensity super fast speed like max power output max watts whatever however you measure it um it's like you can obviously only sustain maximum for a certain period of time which you can't do maximum for 30 minutes or 40 minutes so it's like it almost seems self-regulating in a way where it's kind of obvious but at the same time it's kind of wild how it just goes over people's head because it's like one of the things how do i know i'm doing zone two correctly and it's like uh yeah like is it easy like you know what i mean but also like that kind of just is a misconception in general or maybe not misconception but just a common thing you see in uh, mistakes people make is people like when they have time for a workout this could be athletes too that you know do it full time they want to feel like they're getting a hard workout in. Yeah. It's like it needs, they feel like it needs to be sweaty or it needs to produce yeah. muscle soreness or it needs to like, you know, make me feel a certain way. Um, they might like they, you were saying with those kids. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like proper for me, like proper steady state. I hate even calling a zone two now, but since everyone can like at least understand what we're talking about, I feel refreshed. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I don't feel exhausted when I'm done with it. I feel almost like a high that's like sounds about right. Like I just feel, I, yeah, I just feel refreshed. I feel like stimulated, but in a way that it's like almost energetic, I don't feel exhausted. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, I know even for me, like probably on, on good, like on true zone two cardio, it probably takes me a good 15 to 20 minutes to really actually like start experiencing like 
a good amount of sweat. Granted, I'm a, I'm doing it and I haven't, I'm not following it up with a resistance training workout or something like that. It, it takes a bit of time. I think boredom is just like straight up. I think boredom is most people's issue is that they just can't do something for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And like, that's not quote unquote enjoyable to them. And so, you know, I tell people all the time, like, put on a freaking movie or a Netflix show or yeah. something and just do it. You know what I mean? Like you're going to like, if it's something that, you know, you have to do anyway, or it's like, get on the, like, if you have a Peloton bike or a rower and you happen to have one in your apartment, the odds are like most people I talk to, you're going to sit and watch Netflix. You're going to do something for an hour at a time. It's like, that's a perfect opportunity to just, I don't like people get into the whole Goggins thing where it's like, you shouldn't listen to music and you shouldn't. And it's like, come on, like, just, if it's going to keep you on the bike and doing like, obviously you can't like, go run a marathon and watch a movie, but at least you're If you're going to develop, like, it's also just not the same thing. Like there's a whole like race day. It's like a whole different game day. It's a whole different mindset in just in general. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it is but just then the opposite is true too. Right. It's like some people get too bored to do like the long, slow stuff, long and slow enough. But then when it comes to interval training, like they don't go hard enough, hard enough, they don't rest long enough, but yeah. like, it also ends up being kind of useless. This is the hardest, like, so doing a lot, actually. So the soccer team that I've been coaching, we haven't really done, we've done mostly plyometrics and sprints and jumps, like, because they're just that bad at it. They're horrible mm -hmm. at it. Right. So it's like, and it's funny because the coach one day is like, why are they resting so long? And I was like, cause we're literally on sprint intervals. Right. I'm like, because it's the whole point is to run as fast as you possible. It's a max effort. It should be 100%. And you can't do walkbacks and do 100%. Like it's going to be 100%. It's going to be 85%. It's going to be 70%. It's like, have you ever sprinted max effort? Like it is the most exhausting. It is the most like, you know, neurological demanding task. Like I lift weights all the time and nothing kills me like going out and doing only a few sets of sprints. Like if you're actually truly going max yeah, effort yeah. and they just don't yeah. get it. It's like, this is why your athletes are slow because you never actually let them develop speed. <laughs> yeah. The, the sprinters at the sport Institute and like the, when the bobsled athletes are training with them, uh, they'll do a, like a 50 or 60 and then they'll put their sweats on and they'll sit on top of the heater and then they'll just chill there for 20 minutes before they do their next run. Yeah. Because it's like the only way you can actually do 100%. It's the same with like parallels are in powerlifting. Like if you're actually training heavy strength, like obviously, and this is, you know, I don't want to get too off here because like I found even just improving my just baseline cardiovascular capacity, my ability, like intraset recovery is like higher, obviously. And powerlifters, we know, like basically just don't do cardio, period. But when you're like squatting 800 pounds, those guys will rest seven, eight, nine, 10 minutes. Yeah. which is like not normal because again, but again, not many normal people put 800 pounds on their back and squat it. You know what I mean? So it's like, but it's just the level of tension and force that they have to develop, which is still not even as high as sprinters. But the, but like a lot of people can probably reason with thinking like just, Oh yeah. Like how long does it actually take to recover between sets after like, if you're heavy, heavy, heavy strength training, three to five minutes. So it's like, imagine now you're actually like sprinting. Like, why the hell do you think you're going to sprint 100% max effort after like 90, not even 90 seconds of rest? We're talking that's, that's still too low, in my opinion. I look at like three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, if not more, obviously, if you're like an elite sprinter, but it's also the force output is just going to be higher too, right? So, yeah, yeah. but that is, um, that is a good point. And I've noticed the same thing with my 
strength training is that uh, building up my aerobic base has made a huge difference in terms of my ability to like take shorter rest periods yeah, 100%. and get more total volume in and then and recover quicker between sessions as well. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, like how many strength coaches are probably shitty at the conditioning part because they've been told that uh, it'll ruin their gains. Well, it's funny because I have a uh, kid here now who's basically, he's with me for about four or five more weeks, but he's here D2 football player. And um, he's the strongest he's ever been just being here in like eight weeks. He's training two sessions a day, but at the end of every session that he trains, he does between 20 to 40 minutes of like zone two steady state cardio, which is like most, no football player strength conditioning coach ever has. And he basically came to me and he attributes that to his ability to not only recover because he has done nothing but PR the whole time he's here. He's been here. I mean, he's put like 80 pounds on his front squat. Um, his bench has gone up like 60 or 70 pounds and he's training two days, two days a week. Now, granted, like he's literally here to train. So he's like, he gets his full sleep. He goes home, probably gets a nap, full meals. Like his literally his only thing here. Now, granted, this is like, basically he's a college athlete, but he's a professional athlete, right? His whole job is literally to be the best football player possible. So the environment is obviously set up where he can do that. But the only reason I'm saying that is because it's always funny watching these guys go, yeah, 40 minutes on the rower yesterday or 40 minutes, four or five times, 20 to 40 minutes, four to five times a week that I've been here for eight weeks. They instinctually go, that has probably been the number one thing that they attribute to being able to not only recover between their sets and their, but their days, like, they, he's training two day, two full strength training sessions a day where he comes in and does a power uh, strength session in the morning. Then I have him do strength hypertrophy in the evening again. So he's doubling up, but he's like a hundred percent. It's, it's the steady state stuff that I feel is keeping him healthy, feeling good, recovered. So he can actually lift well, which is like counterintuitive to probably what, like you just said, like most strength coaches not only believe, but teach their athletes. Right. Yeah. And there's starting to be some interesting research around that where like the aerobic training builds the capillaries, you know, more capillaries in your muscles, better blood flow, quicker recovery, better contractions, all some kinds of yeah. research around like um, the number of stem cells in the muscles is related to the number of capillaries in the blood flow. So the better that is, um, that's something that's contributing to um, potentially better muscle building in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even for me, I did, I don't know if you guys remember, I did that row every day where I did like mm -hmm. 10,000 meters a day for a week. And I ended up by the end of the month at 300,000 meters. And that was literally ended right leading up into my rugby season. But I remember too, about halfway through the month, just realizing how much easier practices had gotten. Like by the end of practices, I definitely was like, huh. But then about halfway through the month, I remember I just had that kind of light bulb moment where I was leaving practice one day and I was like, damn, I feel really good. And then I kind of was like, well, shit, I, cause I've put 150,000, you know, meters on the bike in the past two weeks. And so just that bottom end adaptation of just that long steady state cardio, just, it made the whole experience just like way, way, way better for me. Like where I, where I still went to training and like practice the same way that I've been practicing, you know, like the, you kind of like, 
obviously like sports, especially like that, it's self, you kind of moderate, you have to like be efficient with your resources. So no one's ever really going a hundred percent, but you're also not allowed to just like be lazy either. Right. Which is maybe this is like, I think the biggest thing with sports is you're always kind of hanging around in the middle. So you're never low enough or high enough to not only to like, you know, kind of what we've been talking about. You're not, you're definitely not low enough to, to accumulate any sort of good amount of time and volume to get the bottom adaptations. And then because you're just kind of always fatigued and you're kind of always in the middle and because you have to last two hours out of practice doing all kinds of drills and all these different things, you're never really working the top end either, the speed aspect. So, because I think one of the, the other misconceptions, I think in endurance training is that it's not done quickly. It's not, there's no speed involved. Right. But I think that like, when you told me, Carla, when you told me that, that, information piece on Kipkaji and how fast he actually runs a marathon. Like if you actually compare it to hundred meter times, it's like, it's like, okay, that's not that fast, right? Like probably most, like all high school, most all any high school track kids going to run what a 17 second hundred, right? Like most of them are running that yeah. probably close to 200 meters. But then if you think about how many times he's doing that in a row with zero rest, it's actually like the statistic insane. is actually insane. And then you go, oh, okay, there is a lot of speed, right? Because I think that's also probably one of the other misconceptions in conditioning, especially for endurance athletes, is that it's the endurance should be the focus always. But what about the speed aspect? Because you still have to, you still have to cover a distance as fast as possible. It's not just like covering a distance. That's not what lands you in first place. If it was like, yeah. if it's just covering the distance, I go out and run the Boston Marathon tomorrow. I'll just walk that bitch. You know what I mean? You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone can do it. But Anyone can do it at that point, hard. right? Exactly. Exactly. But so. yeah, I had this um I have this athlete that started working with me last summer, um, like end of last summer. So we only had like three months to build for her A race, which was an Ironman. And she had been an Ironman athlete for like 10 years. And so she was very experienced in the sport. I really was not bringing anything to the table from like a you know, here's how to corner on your bike perspective. It was very much just like a physiology side of things. And she could handle the, what's the, you know, what's the best wetsuit for me and whatever else. And so, um, I had a, like a deep look into the previous years of her training and the years that she did the best and the type of training she was doing and the volumes. And I realized that, you know, for an Ironman, like, um, a full Ironman takes some of the best athletes in the world, like 12, 11 or 12 hours and the 70.3 is like half that like six seven hours but she was trying to do this race uh to qualify for kona uh, championships and that's like the the biggest i guess iron man race in uh in kona in hawaii and so it turns out that like she just always really avoided intensity and that was coupled with the fact that we only had like a few months to build. And so instead of doing really sports specific training and um, just saying like, oh, well, that will make a good Ironman athlete because like they got to go long and slow. Uh, we just did a lot of intensity training and we cut her volume down a ton and she hated me and she hated it and she developed like little niggles in her body so we were really managing like from an injury yeah. perspective the whole time but when she raced she ended up getting a 40 minute personal best and qualifying for kona which she was wow. hoping to just get like an extra seat like a almost like a what you would call it but like 
like a like a fake qualifying, you know, like I didn't truly get the time I needed, but they have an extra spot for this many extra close hours. enough that they yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. but she ended up instead of getting that kind of like backdoor kind of entry to Kona, she just qualified. And I was shocked because in the previous years she had only improved by like one or two minutes in the whole 40 race. minutes. 40 minutes. That's insane. And so that's just like an example, I think, of like, well, a individualization is key. And then number 100%. two, like you, you can't underestimate like that speed is always a factor, yeah. even in the longest distance races. Um, you have to like that's a quality that you need for like to pull up your ceiling on some of those high end events. I mean, it'd be the same as saying like, OK, I got an endurance athlete in the gym. I need to make them better. Let's do some heavy strength work because that should pull up their top ceiling. So even when they're doing sets of 20, like their sets of 20 weight will go up too. Right. Um, it's the same idea. It's like yeah. the, you know, like um, for sprinters, uh, Charlie Francis had that idea of um, building the speed first and not worrying about anything after that. And he's like, because if they don't have the speed, then like none of the volume is going to matter. Yeah, because so like, you're just going to be doing a lot of volume slowly. And the whole point yeah. is to bring up both speed and volume and the speed at yeah. which you do the volume. <laughs> like, I think that's yeah. like probably what the main point, right? It's like, especially at that level, it's not just about how much volume you do. It's how much, like, what objective measurement are we looking at? In this case, speed, are we actually like accumulating that volume in, right? Because even yeah. I think on the lowest end, like, and so people too, like for me, just like as a personal experience, because again, I don't have a lot of knowledge in this, but for sure... By the end of that 300,000 meter rowing, I was getting faster, right? For the same level of effort. So it's like that scale should adjust still. Like it, it's that the perceived effort should remain the same, but the speed at which that effort, the, the, the speed and distance in which you cover should be greater, like ideally, yeah. right? Yeah. And like a common way to develop a sprinter um common even these days is like the reverse of what nick is just talking about with charlie francis well he talks about both models but um like the speed first is also referred to as like the short to long model where you start with uh like short you know tens and 20s like at speed and when you can hit the speed that he needs you to hit then you get to add more uh distance Sorry, but the opposite of that would be like long to short model. And that's more common of how people tend to develop their sprinters these days where they start the uh, off season with 800s or 400s or 200s or like these super extremely long things, um, even in the sport of bobsleigh where it's not even a 100 meter race, it's more like a 20 or so meter race. And they'll do like, yeah, these super ultra long things in the beginning and then taper those down and get faster into their off season until it's time to compete. But those adaptations are just so unspecific. Um, well, and one was Charlie Francis vertical integration. Um, did he talk about that? I think he might've, was he the one that kind of coined is, isn't he the one that kind of coined vertical integration, like kind of always training all the qualities, but, but like, just, just scaling, like which ones are yeah. prioritized at which point, but that you don't, you never like, he, he was like against block periodization for the most part yeah. you don't just like train something and then get rid of it like stop training yeah. it. you like train yeah. it and then you keep it in at minimum effective dose while you focus on other things it was like yeah it, it might have been him but okay. i feel like yeah that vertical integration just makes a lot more sense because especially then when you're trying to 
like block periodization, a, a typical way you might do that in the weight room is like you start with more hypertrophy training, then you go to more strength training, then you go to more uh, speed or power training, and that might be like a month block each. Um, but that doesn't even talk about conditioning in there. So we've forgotten. Yeah, to I mean, even again. <laughs> even block periodization at this point, I think smart strength coaches, even even strength sport coaches have moved away from block periodization for part i mean i, I mean we can kind of really probably we, well i it's probably common but i think amongst higher level guys now i think you're starting to see a lot more powerlifters talk about the importance of like maintaining other qualities not just like block period as like anyways we can kind of probably get into that in a bit with the hybrid stuff too but um yeah it's probably more common just because like because you know. it's in textbooks still, and so yeah, exactly, sure exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Coach, that's that's what's commonly book. applied. But I think I think my point is like experienced coaches actually realize that like there's heavy limitations to block periodization, and, and at the end of the day, it's like when you do develop a certain adaptation, if you just stop training it, then it's it's like you you kind of go, well, what was the freaking point of training it in the first place if I'm just going to stop, right? Because it yeah. like because you are going to like well, you will lose it in some capacity. But anyways, in terms of the vertical integration too, we've talked about periodization and like the traditional models and for the individuals, like we work out with, um, or if you just take anyone and you decide like, what are the biggest gaps that are holding this person back and what do they need to get better to like win this key competition? If you've decided on like three things that are limiting them a year out from their event like and those are the big rocks in their bucket then don't build out a plan where you you know give them like 12 weeks of base building or hypertrophy or something that's not addressing one of those big rocks just start working on those three things right from the beginning and work on them the whole way through yeah until something else comes up maybe and you're like okay yeah. we we yeah. we tackled it now let's change the focus if needed right yeah. right yeah that makes sense are there any other major misconceptions around you know conditioning um, that another big one is like just people being way too anal about their heart rates it's like oh, yeah a misconception yeah. is that if you don't have that perfect like 140 beats per minute or under or whatever the specific percentages that you calculate out from your google search that you're not going to be doing anything or that that yeah. won't give you enough of a training effect but um you know it's more like the magnitude of the stimulus will dictate the adaptation and so like you can get better vo2 max and you can get fitter doing just intensity and you can also do that by you know doing long slow distance stuff which is way easier to ac accumulate tons of volume right. um, but nick and i in our own training most recently like we're good examples of that like when i started training for the boston um in like november and i i've been a runner for like 10 years but i hadn't really done any specific like training in the last three years since like 2020 so when i started training again i was uh it was really cold in calgary in november so i was mostly on the treadmill and so i set it at a pace that i thought was like pretty easy and it was like six or 6.5 miles per hour but man like my heart rates were high and i was i was ashamed because i was like i'm a runner like i should not have high heart rates right now but this feels easy on my body but my heart rate is so high yeah. and i just kind of said like it's all good and i just kept pushing through and my heart rates didn't drop for 
maybe a month. Like I didn't really see a change in them for, you know, a good month of training four or five days a week, just running. And it's also just five or six, but it's also just considering there could be other things that are affecting your heart rate recovery. Um, I mean, I'm pretty consistent though. Like training the same sleep. day, I eat the same thing every day. I sleep pretty consistent. Like, so for you, not really. For me, not really. And so the fact that my heart rates, you know, I train every morning before work, after a meal, right, you know, after I slept eight hours, whatever, and my heart's didn't change for a long time. And so I think a lot of people would see that and either like fire their coach, like this training program's not working, my heart rates are not getting any lower, or they would see those higher heart rates and then drop the pace way down um, or get really frustrated, like just not having that perfect heart rate zone that their coach calculated or that they had in their mind as being like perfect. And that's where like RPE based training is really awesome. Um, and I've talked about this, or we've talked about this before, um, on our Instagram page a lot is, you know, RPE based training is really well accepted now in the strength community, but it's really poo pooed on in the endurance community still. Um, to the point where like we've had athletes sign up for coaching and when we give them an RPE based training program, cause they sign up for something a little bit less individualized, um, they are mad, like actually mad yeah. at us. I think that's also just a lack of like personal accountability and like responsibility as an athlete. I think honestly, people are just lazy. Like, like I think people there, I think probably the biggest breakthrough for me in training period was like self-awareness. And like, there's obviously like some personal development that has to occur for you to become more self-aware. And I think people are just lazy and they, they want to avoid responsibility of just, of just saying like, I'm just not aware enough about me and what I'm doing with my body and the, the signs that I'm getting that they just try to, uh, they kind of just try to like zone out and they, and, and they just want to be spoon fed like a, like a, like a mechanical response, right? Like they just input equals output. And I, it doesn't require anything other than that. But unfortunately, like we're just not machines, right? So like input doesn't always equal output. And there's like so many other factors to consider. And I think like self-awareness and training is probably one of the biggest stepping stones. I think that athletes development develop that kind of take them from like that intermediate level to elite is that they just become self-aware and they become more aware of who they are and what they can tolerate and what's good for them and what's not good for them. And obviously like they still have coaching and stuff that they use as like a, like a soundboard. But I find like, this is something that I actually just talked about with the coach on the last podcast, which is kind of cool that you guys are talking about this because it's like, at some point you just have to like stop and like look within and kind of just under like, is this, you know what I mean? Like, and I think RPE unfortunately is one of those things where somebody has to be aware about what they're doing and it requires them to actually stop and think and go, what effort am I putting in versus like just going, Oh, 80% of my blah, that's boom, that's this. And so I need to train at this. And it's like, like I, for me, I, in my opinion, that's probably like, probably why people don't like it is like, especially I feel like running is like, I feel like if people get into endurance sports to check out a little bit, right. It's like, Oh, just kind of mindless and thoughtless. And I just have to, but I don't know, maybe that's just me projecting or something, but feel like it's, it's a big step. I think that's probably why people reject it. Yeah. Or like, yeah, they reject the tra training program or something when they just need to like, like yeah. just accumulate more time. Like just also just, ex I think expectation is another one. Like people have such acute expectations for everything. And it's like, I think, I think adaptations just have buffers, 
right? And so it's like people think, oh, three months of training, what I do now for this next is going to lead me to this point in three months where I really kind of think of it as like, actually what's really happening is like whatever I did three months prior to this is probably what's really like starting. I'm starting to pick, like, I think there's a bigger buffer than people think kind of like between, I don't know. Like, I just think people just look at things too acutely, period. But, yeah, you know, that's just me. Yeah. So. And people just think things are more objective and controlled than they are. And they don't credit RP as something that actually takes into account more variables, not less. Yeah, it's just, and I just think it takes honesty. Mm. You know, I just think, like, it's, it's, you know, it's like a virtue. Like, it's hard to be, like, completely honest. You know what I mean? Um, but it's also like, it, it becomes a slippery slope because then it's like, if you ask somebody to be self-aware sometimes, it's like, they can also use that as a justification to like rear, like, like reel things back when they shouldn't, when they should really be pushing or whatever. I think it's just like a, but I think that's where the self-awareness part comes. It's not just like, it just really becomes about, it comes to being honest about just like, what's, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And like, what is that actually going to take to get there? Not, not, and it's, and unfortunately it's, we're not as simple as like plugging numbers into an algorithm and you're going to get an outcome. It just like, it just doesn't work like that, you know? Yeah. So, um, and, um, I, I had an experience like, I wouldn't necessarily say similar to Carla's, but I was coming into running relatively new as a large unfit person. And, uh, so she would prescribe me this, like, very easy running and if i and i would often just run on the treadmill like between sessions at work but if i'm running as slow as i can run where it's like any slower and i'd have to start walking um my heart rates were getting like too high mm. like 20 beats higher by the end of that than she wanted them and rather than like stressing about that and being about in the perfect zone and saying like, okay, I have to take, turn this into an incline walk or something. I just accepted that higher heart rate and ran at it. And then obviously things get lower as you get fitter. Yeah. It just wasn't a big deal and not worth. Just not like overthinking it. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause my big ass would be like, Oh, time to walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, perfect. <laughs> this means I can walk now. <laughs> and you were even doing that like as a hybrid athlete, kind of, because you were still trying to push your strength numbers. Yeah. While you were also trying to now make cardio gains. So you're like the perfect um dummy test dummy for like hybrid training. Yeah. And it, well, you know, I had a similar mindset to a lot of strength guys, um where I didn't want to do the slow, easy stuff. I was pretty resistant to that. Like, I like the idea of sprinting. Um, yeah. And so the first year I started running, I'm like, well, I want to do fast stuff. I'll concede to doing like one slow session a week. So I kind of, I would run three times a week of like one kind of hard sprint day, one kind of medium sprint day and one long, easy day. That did turn into like two easy days once I got used to it. Um, but I didn't make nearly as much progress in my fitness doing that as I did the next year when I was just like, okay, I'm going to, this year, I'm going to build up my volume of easy stuff 
And so, uh, and as the sprinting stuff I found interfered with my lifting more okay. and I would get more little like niggles and things that would come up. Um, when I started just doing easy stuff, uh, recovered from that super quick, never seemed to interfere with my weight training and I could build my volume up and kind of my goal was to build up to six hours a week. And I think we did that over a couple months. Um, but that felt good. And I just saw my heart rates like dropping consistently month to month. And your strength going up. Yeah. And my strength was going up. So you kind of just intuitively kind of started balancing things out. It seems like depending on what you were trying to focus on more, which like obviously time is like another factor that people can need to consider, right? Like, um, it can change with time too, right? Like you get better at one thing and you're like, okay, now I need to increase this part. Whereas I, this part increased for so long and now this one's kind of lagging. So now I have to adjust that. And it's like, I think that's the other time, the problem too, with like just too much structure and too much pre-planning is that like, you just become so rigid and like what you have to do that like people are unwilling to pivot when they need to pivot. Right. And just change the plan. I think people just get so bought into like what they've planned out for a year whatever that it's just like they're so blinded to the fact that so much has changed or certain thing maybe not so much has changed but certain very specific things have changed which now we have to adjust and accommodate for right yeah and um and one of the things that got me interested in running carl actually challenged me and said there was uh she thought at the time she challenged me there was no one in the world that had done a 500 pound squat and a five minute mile in the same day and then I think we figured out now there's like three or Couple, four there's, people. There's a few people now, right? But still, that's a very small population of people. Yeah. And um, I mean, three or same, four people. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Not, not many. And uh, I've done I've done this squat before. I'm like a little off of that these days. But um, uh, so initially that first year when I'm running, I'm like, okay, I need to practice that faster stuff. And once a week uh that one of those medium runs would be just doing a time trial at that five minute mile pace and uh i think the best i got to that year was a little over three minutes but those like it was funny because carlo would program those days as like you do one all out um see how long you can go at that pace and then you get this much rest and then if you can keep, I think it was like 90% of the time that you did in the first one. Uh, you keep going. Then you keep going. So if I did 90% of like three minutes in the second interval, then I would do a third one. And then I would keep going like that. I never did more than two intervals because my like aerobic fitness was so shit that I just couldn't recover fast enough between those bouts that I could never like get any actual volume at the higher intensities. Um, Uh, so then that segues into like actually taking a time to step back from the speed stuff for myself, building up the aerobic capacity with the slow stuff. And then now when I do intervals, I can actually recover fast enough to get like a meaningful amount of volume there. Which is like, there's no way you're going to know without just trying, 
with people yeah. a lot of times, right? Like that's where the individual approach will always reign king because it's like, you just have to look at what's in front of you. <laughs> like you might have this idealistic version of the way to do it, but you have to just look at the person in front of you at the end of the day and say, Oh, well, they're good at this. This is, a, and you have to be able to change the plan. Unfortunately, fortunately for you, you have Carla who can look at yeah. that and, and make those decisions. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even in my own training, like again, so I hired my own, like one of Vitals um, endurance coaches to help me with this Boston build because I don't listen to myself. As you know, yeah. Jeff, I have you know, to get strength training from someone really else. Do. Like, yeah. I won't do stuff unless somebody else tells me because otherwise I'll just look at the plan and be like, yeah, I had this intention for this workout, but I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because but... people, I think, always think because we're professionals in this field, like we have just as much, uh, discipline for those things as like others but like like i can come into the gym and get just carried away doing all the fun stuff that i want to do just the same way anyone else can right so i it's have just, to like yeah i have to nice put to be accountable accountability in place because that's always in my opinion really it's like what most people's issue is so it's like you just need that accountability factor otherwise it's yeah. you know so but yeah in my in my own build like you know if i go back to my master's um program and what we had learned about periodization at the time um, would be that like a a sprinter versus an endurance athlete, like you might load a sprinter in like a, a meso that would be shaped like a, a low week or like a initial build week, a slightly higher week, and then a deload week. Um, so three week kind of meso cycles versus uh, an endurance athlete we were taught. You might be able to do like a four to six week meso where they could build for a lot longer before they needed a deload into the next meso. Um, but I actually found in my own um, Boston like training that I actually ended up falling, following more of like that sprinter mm. pattern where I could do like two really hard builds and then I actually needed a deload before I'd go again. And it wasn't until like a few of these cycles, I thought something was wrong with me at first. Cause you know, Rick kept saying like, okay, we're going to take another deload week. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, for X, Y, Z reasons, like let's, let's take a little deload. It's all good. You got lots of time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to trust you. That's literally why you're here. <laughs> um, yeah. and it, it pretty much followed that pattern, like the whole way through for six months. Um, with the finish being like, yay, I qualified for Boston, but you know, Congrats, it doesn't always follow. Thank you. Um, it doesn't always follow the same patterns as you would see in the textbook. And then Nick is yeah. a good example of that too, where like the more flat loading is considered like a worse way of loading someone where there's no like variation, like in volumes or intensities week to week. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Nick can speak to a little more, like he does really well on flat loading. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what I wanted to say about that. I feel like you initially, when you were training, you did a little bit more um, where I would try to say to you, like, okay, let's try to do another like upper week um, or let's try to build a little bit more. Can I give you a little more volume? And then you, for one reason or another, you would kind of say like, like, no, like this, like this feels right or this feels good. Right? So I feel like we did a few ups and downs and you're like, let's just try the same volume for a while. And I think it helped your strength yeah sessions. i mean there was um for different reasons there were that was good for my endurance stuff and for my strength stuff um i think with that was that first year of the endurance i always felt like i was struggling to actually hit the targets so it's more a question of like well i want to be able to do this workout well and i'm i'm just happy 
executing it better and it feeling easier rather than always feeling like I need to do more on top of that. And then once it's like easy, then I'll add something to it. With the strength, it's like pretty typical for people to program blocks where you add volume like every week and then you have a deload. And then um, like, uh, I think Angus has talked about this a lot, but in terms of like the average person not meeting program deloads because life yeah. just gets in the way. And then I find the same things with myself. And so like, and, and I, because I, with the strength stuff, I'm just more intuitive. Like I'll do three weeks of exactly the same volume. And then, uh, if I feel tired, I'll just do less one day, but it often ends up, I do less because I'm fitting workouts in between clients and I have yeah. like 40 minutes. So maybe I don't have time to do like seven sets. I have time to do four sets. And then yeah. I just like deloaded myself one day. At the end of the day, I've just become more holistic in my approach. I mean, I think I've pretty much auto-regulated my strength training for the last like, what? I don't know, four or five years. Like I've not really mm -hmm. ran a program. I just, and like, just to be fair, I've just made the most progress because I've, it's just required me to become like, and again, it's not something I would recommend to everybody per se. Like I obviously operate on some sort of template. Like I have some idea in mind of like what I'm doing, but like basically since, and I think we talked about this briefly, like in our chat and then we'll, we'll kind of get back on topic, but you know, like when I broke my leg playing rugby, I was like, okay, well I'm out for four months. What can I do? Well, I'm just going to train as much as I humanly possibly can. In, in the next four months, right? Because I'm not going to rugby practices. I'm not playing games and not whatever. So I'm just going to do everything that I possibly can. And I started training twice a day. Some, some days I train three times a day. And, um, you know, it, it's just like, I just life, I just have this opportunity for the amount of time that I have, and I'm still training twice a day and I've started back up, but it, it's, it's still intuitive in a sense that I, I work up to the capacity that I'm capable of doing. And like on the days that I feel good, I go for it. And the days that I don't feel as good, even sometimes on those days I go for it because as I'm building up, I realize, Oh, even though I don't feel great, things are moving quick. Um, you know, I'm over, like, I just like, it's, it's become very auto-regulated and self-regulated and, and yeah, on the days that I feel like doing volume, I do more volume. And on the days that I don't, I don't. And, you know, I use certain like, markers for for me i look at like bar speed or like just mechanical tension in general like do, is my concentric becoming a lot slower like that's how i kind of know how do i decide if i'm going to do three sets of five instead of five sets of five well i'm going to start with three sets of five and if the speed continues and it's not dropping off well i'm going to do another set and i'm going to do another set oh my fifth set it's slowed down on my final couple reps so i'm done like i just use certain principles that are like this is what it's kind of gonna what's going to guide my training more or less and then some days I can do more volume and some days I can't. Some days I lift a heavier one rep max and other days I can't. And it's just, I like, I, I just become more holistic in a sense. It's all kind of just adding to the water to the bucket, right? Like it's cool. not, and it's very freeing in the sense it's like, you know, in the past four months I've put on literally 20 pounds. It's like, well, people are like, well, how do you know, how are you not overtraining? How are you not? It's like, I don't know. I just don't even really focus on that anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah. I just like eat as much food as I even possibly can. And then I sleep well. 
you know, in fact, I find that I sleep better because I'm actually like exhausted and tired by the time I get home. I'm like, actually want to go to sleep instead of, oh, I got an hour to just sit here and watch Netflix or whatever. No, I'm like, I'm home. I want to go to bed. And then I sleep for nine hours and it's like, I get up and do it again. And I'm not always going to be able to sustain this amount of volume or training or workout. I don't even think it, it just, I just happen to be able to do it. So I am doing it. You know, it's the same with my football player. He's not going to be able to maintain two days of training, like, or two, two a days training four days a week on top of two days where I have him on the field doing plyos and sprints and other things too. So he's technically training six days a week. He's not going to be able to sustain that, but we're going to get as much done as we can with the time that he, that he has, especially if he's healthy and he's feeling good and he's continuing to make progress. So yeah, I just, I think that holistic approach just is better anyway. I think it's, you know, I don't know. That's just kind of where I'm at. Yeah. So. In my strength training these days, I pretty much, I just have a rolling program. So I kind of wrote down like four days that I like to do. I don't give a shit what days of the week I get them done on. It's like, I just, yeah, do I'm, the, I'm kind of the same way. Yeah. yeah. And then the next time I have a chance to work out, I do the next one. Exactly. Then, yeah. I yeah. think that's a good way of doing it. Well, too, it's like, well, funny too. Cause some of the rugby guys are like, how, you know, like, how do you keep up strength training during the rugby season? Like, you know, I, I got my first week back and I felt like shit. So I took my strength training out. It's like, well, duh. Like you, like you added a completely different stimulus and new stimulus. It doesn't mean that the, like, it's just funny how people will be like, I haven't played rugby in six months. I've been strength training. And then I started back at rugby and I was just so fatigued and exhausted. So I had to stop strength (laughs) training. And it's like, yeah, bro, you didn't even give it a week. You didn't even give it to like, a week is nothing even I like give it the month. You know what I mean? Like you can adapt to work capacity the same way that you can adapt to any other. Like it's just, again, I think it really just comes down to excuses and laziness. It's like, yeah, it's, you're going to be tired for a couple of weeks. It doesn't mean, you know, Alec actually made a really good post and maybe we can transition here because he talked about adding in more running volume and his quote unquote strength went down, but it's, you know, fatigue, mass fitness. So like, obviously you're adding another stimulus, so your like your level of performance as it may appears or as it may appear has dropped but once that stimulus that the adaptation to the new stimulus occurs it'll essentially it'll balance itself out or once you reduce it you'll actually come back and you'll realize that you've actually gotten stronger because again it's just that total body of stimulus is going somewhere Right. So it's like, just because you're not lifting as much weight doesn't mean you're not still getting stronger or, you know, whatever adaptation that you choose uh, to look at. But I find the same thing, right. It's, it's like, you know, right before I started rugby, I think I squatted four thirty-five or four forty-five, and I haven't hit that number since, but then I deadlifted and hit 500. And it's like, I, probably can't do it right now, but it doesn't mean that like my strength training that I'm doing in the volume isn't going to, once this buffer kind of removes itself, once I get back to it, I'm not going to pull 550 or even 600, which I feel like is actually there just because I'm not actively at that metric doesn't mean that the the capacity of the strength that I'm building is not going to be there at that time. It's just that it's being inhibited a bit by just fatigue. You know what I mean? And so that's yeah. that like vertical integration too. Is yeah. like once you drop one, you can kind of put rugby on maintenance or a bit of like running exactly. to kind of keep that yeah. and then just like up the other one. And that's like a great way of periodizing. Yeah. yeah. And okay, cool. You come back for, and that was the thing for me. It was just funny. Cause like when I finally got back to deadlifting, cause I remember I couldn't deadlift for, I had the boot and then I couldn't really 
I could only do stiff leg deadlifts for a while because I couldn't like fully bent, like my ankle couldn't internally and externally rotate because it still was a little sore. But I did so many other things. And then finally, within weeks of my deadlifts went up 20 pounds one week and then 20 pounds the next. And then boom, it was like 500. Was, I went from like 400 to 500 in like a month. It's like, it's not because I actually increased my strength that much in a month. It was always there. It was just my, my, my ability to actually display it finally came into play, whether it was just coordination or, you know, there's so many other things to consider. But it's like, I think that's another misconception that people think is like, it, especially when it comes to like training as a hybrid sort of where you're kind of training two of these qualities that seemingly seem like they're seemingly on the opposite ends of the spectrum of one another. It's like, you're still developing. If you're, if you're, yeah. if you're coming in training at a high enough intensity, you're still developing strength and your max output, even though you may not, you know, be able to necessarily display it on, on, ev on every given day or, or whatever. It's like this weird thing, this weird thought process that people think that like that the, the objective, you know, numbers that we're looking at have to always be climbing. If they're not climbing, we're not getting stronger. And it's like, uh, not necessarily, that's not necessarily true at all, but yeah, there's like one of my friends an athlete, I train Alex Hansen, he's been to the Olympics for skeleton for Norway. Um, and then I kind of started training him on the tail end of his career. So I think after about a year's when he officially retired, but um, he never did any endurance training when he was a skeleton athlete. And then, um, and he is, he's a super strong guy. He's like, um, I think he probably weighs like 180 something and squats close to 500. But uh, when he retired, he decided he wanted to get into biking and you know, we would typically like ease someone into something and, you know, his personality is just like, no, fuck it. I'm just going to go for it. So he starts doing these like long rides every day, like just going for it. He probably had like three or four months where his strength training wasn't like, it wasn't shit, but all of his numbers were like down quite significantly. And that wasn't, right. I wouldn't call it an interference effect. That was just like you said, the fitness or the fatigue ma masking the fitness. And yeah. once he got used to that endurance volume, like everything started going back up. And then he was like still biking just as much, if not more, and then squatting more than he was previously. Yeah. And that, that was like basically my point with a lot of these guys in rugby. It's like, okay, sure. For a couple of weeks, I'm going to be fatigued. I'm going to be tired, but I'm not, I'm still getting stronger on top yeah. of now adapting to the capacity needed to actually play rugby. Right. But this will pass like this phase will pass to the point where I will eventually adapt to both playing rugby and training at the same time. I'm not going to take such an acute window and base all of my training decisions on a week or two of, Oh, I'm tired. Like, so I need to stop strength training. Like, because yeah. I'm tired, you know, it's just like, it's just, it's just not how I think. Like, you know, well, obviously at this point, I'm like, I'm also the guy that was in here seated deadlifting the day after I broke my freaking leg. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to keep training. So it's like, it's not going, you're not going to stop me from training. Cause I obviously believe in it and I'm going to do it in any capacity that I can with not like, obviously over the grand scheme, placing numbers or putting some sort of priority on the numbers and the metrics that we use to determine certain things, but those aren't always the best indications of improvement. Um, and it's like, 
just kind of trusting that process and knowing that like there's no way that coming in here and strength training or hopping on the bike for hours a week it's not it's going somewhere it's not just it's not just disappearing into the vastness of space and not going anywhere it, it is doing something to me and like we can't always we can't always i don't want people to like obviously miss like quote me and misunderstand me but we just can't always look at those metrics in such an acute bout of time without looking at the bigger picture and understanding there's like a lot of different things. Yeah. I don't really like interference effect. It's like, eh, it's the same thing. It's just yeah. like, you're still building, you're still building your top end strength. And it's like, I think I talked to, I talked, maybe it was like the rugby strength coach or whatever. And I, or a couple other guys and they all basically across the board said, as soon as guys start playing rugby, we expect to see their, their, their strength, their weight room performance metrics to go down by anywhere between 10 to 20% based on the athlete themselves. But as soon as that training tapers off, it doesn't mean that they stop training and go, Oh my God, they're getting weaker. Cause that's not what's happening. It's just that they're going to keep training. And then once they come off that season or whatever, and they get, then those numbers all of a sudden jump another jump back up 20%. It's like, you didn't automatically just get stronger. It's always been there. It's just that again, there's just a, you know, some there's like this buffer that kind of happens that kind of in, you know, inhibits the output or I don't even know how you want to frame it, but I could be totally, yeah. but that's like a common thing that most of them will say, Oh yeah, they're, they'll strength go down by 10 to 20%, but we're still strength training. It just, it just means that your baseline that you're basing everything off of is just slightly lower now and that's okay. You know, but it doesn't yeah. mean you stop training, <laughs> which um, I think is what a lot of people will do. In the sport, within the sport, in the in the sport world, you know. But then you look at guys like Michael Jordan and Steph Curry and like high elite athletes that play a specific sport that has nothing to do with the weight room, and then you actually look and they still train. They'll train the morning of games, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it's like when you do it your whole career, it's like it's it's nothing new. It's just gonna you know it's they're gonna understand that certain variability in performance can't always be blamed on this one thing. You know what I mean? It's just like a ridiculous way to look at it. If, if the variables are somewhat consistent and if you give them enough time to act, like, I think that's like one of the biggest things is people just don't, it's like, yeah, you're, of course, you know, you just ran two hours. When was the last time you ran two hours on top of strength training? Oh, well just give it a few weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if like, yeah. and if like at the end of a month, you're like literally pissing your bones out and like your, your urine is brown and you're bleeding or like, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, maybe then like look at maybe go, huh, something's wrong here. But like, other than that, you can't just, you can't just be like, you know, again, I think it just comes down to laziness really is people just want to find an excuse not to work. They don't want to find an excuse not to do something. And I just think like great athletes just won't do that. They always, they have the opposite. Like I, in my opinion, my best athletes that I train, I have to stop them from doing more and more and more and more and more and more and more. I have to get them to chill out, not just, oh, well, how convenient. I can stop training now because the season started, you know, and it's like, yeah. You know. but, yeah, I did. I did make that mistake recently. I, uh, I hit the front squat PR, but then, uh, and I was pretty content with it, but then I had a five day vacation. And then I had two half marathons. I had a minor pep tear, but all of those things was like, okay, I'm gonna just let the weightlifting chill while I focus on running and get these things done. And then my wife had a baby. But uh, it's been a busy month. In uh, that's a that's a pretty valid like yeah. circumstance change. <laughs> but in in retrospect, by like not 
weight training for about eight weeks. I've, or two months, basically, I've now lost at least like four or five months because of the time it takes me to like build back to where I was. Yeah. Whereas if I had just like done, like we're talking about the minimum effective maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. I could have like maybe lost a month's worth of time. Yeah. And I personally think like there's a balance obviously, but like even the football coach, like I told him, like we still need to train, even if it's just one day a week on the beginning of the week before they play. And obviously like this is a national level team. They're playing like, I think they're playing six of the top 20 nationally ranked teams in the country or something like that. Like, so it's not like they're just playing like a bunch of like random freshmen at some high school, public high school that just like have never played football before. Like, like this is, these are like put together teams playing the best of the best. So the level of competition is obviously quite higher than your average football team, but it's like, the, the mistake that I see is just that is like the strength, the football coach thinks, Oh, well, we're playing football now. So we got to take out training. They got to stop training. It's like, no, we want them to still maintenance their strength because if you just stop training, they will get weaker. And then I do partly believe that a lot of those injuries and stuff come from the fact that they're just now getting weaker. Like the capacity is just getting lower and lower. So even if we maintenance it at a lower baseline, that's better than doing nothing. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be like, just come in and do something or, this all kind of bridges us into like hybrid athlete stuff because like to me technically any almost almost any team sport or field sport athlete is a hybrid athlete in some capacity because they need both anaerobic and aerobic qualities not just one or the other depending the more i think you specialize into like sprinting or endurance um based sports and even they still need some both capacity like they still need a bit of both just depending on but um yeah, I was going to say, that's a hot topic. <laughs> it's a hot topic right now, but I also just think like, it's like just like a CrossFit, you know what I mean? Um, but I think even still the air of CrossFitters is that, and, and, and the very best, even if, and this is a funny part, is like when you actually look at CrossFit, right? And a lot of people assume, oh, CrossFit will make me better at CrossFit. I'm going to go to the CrossFit games by just showing them to my CrossFit classes. And then you actually look at the top athletes of the CrossFit Games. What do they do? They specialize certain adaptations that they need to get better at. So it's either they actually have heavy Olympic, you know, knowing whatever they're going to compete in. Oh, we got a bunch of running events. So what do they do? They hire a running coach and they actually train running. Or, you know, oh, we got swimming events. So what do they do? They hire swim coaches and they train swimming. And oh, wow, this is a like a, a big weightlifting, you know, so they hire weightlifting coaches and they train their weightlifting while still main, main, maintaining a lot of those general CrossFit workouts and qualities. They don't get, they don't actually become CrossFit games competitors by just showing up to CrossFit class. They get better at CrossFit class by specializing at their endurance activities or their strength or power activities or whatever. So it, it is a, I think that's a pretty easy way. Like, you know, you're obviously going to get more fit by just showing to CrossFit class, but it's not going to make you the best in the world at that sport let's just call it a sport because that's basically what they have made it into but it's i think it's an easy thing for people to look at and go if you actually look at like rich froning's training or it's like that was the biggest surprise for me is when i was in crossfit was like what is rich froning doing well he's not doing metcons to get become rich froning he's actually squatting heavy he's actually doing heavy olympic lifts he's actually doing strongman training he's actually got a running coach and he's actually training endurance training and so he's bringing up and it is a bit of vertical integration oh He's really good at the Olympic lifting. So he just maintenances the Olympic lifting while he works on his running. And so it's like, 
I just think most, I really do think outside of actual specifics, I think most athletes are actually just, you just, you need hybrid qualities. It's not just one or the other. Yeah. And I, you know, I've said like a mistake that a lot of, whereas some strength coaches make starting out is um, because they're familiar with the strength training side of things, they might take a, a team sport athlete and then just try to overlay like a, a powerlifting program or a weightlifting program or bodybuilding that's like made for someone who's just doing that stuff on yeah. top of what that athlete's doing everywhere else. It's not that you can't do that. You just need to like build up to it in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, what we called like when we wanted to first name this workshop we were debating between like calling it just putting the c back in s and c or like something else but that's like the that's like the notion is most s and c coaches don't know how to do the conditioning side at all or if they do it's copy pasted out of a textbook and yeah i think the textbooks are quite outdated even or they don't understand the background behind what they're doing um, so then you get the hypertrophy strength power type, you know, periodization. Um, and then there's no troubleshooting. There's no, okay, I have an athlete that's injured or I have an athlete that's uh, weaker at this other thing. How can I prioritize that? Um, and that's how you, I think, develop athletes. Like you have to have a little bit of all of that knowledge. Yeah, it's just funny because I have a girl who works here with me and she's a doing a kinesiology degree at USF and USF is like considered actually one of the top, I think it's like literally considered one of the top schools for that in the country. And she's like, she's like, just like training people and like actually going and training athletes. Like she comes and helps with the soccer teams and stuff. She goes, she's basically just like, yeah, like, honestly, I don't even know what my degree is for because we yeah. don't learn any of this. <laughs> like, yeah. like we don't because, learn any of They're still, they're yeah. still learning. They're still learning like um hypertrophy is eight to twelve reps. <laughs> eight to twelve reps. Yeah, I mean, and that and like uh yeah, it's it's just like and, and she's even told me just through stuff that she's learned through me, is like she even is like has to lie on some of her exams and tests yeah. because it's like she knows what they want for the answer, not know so it's like just a really bizarre and, and again, like, the textbook's twenty years old. By researchers. Yeah, yeah. like exactly. classes are run by the researchers who have a theoretical understanding and they don't have a very practical understanding. Yeah. Um, like I was just watching. Yeah. They never had to do. They're just, they're just regurgitating yeah. the same shit that they learned 20 years ago. And it's just like, it never goes yeah. anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's quite unfortunate, but it's like, you just have to take like there was a, there was a video I was just watching of Carmen's and she was like, yeah, this big meta analysis and the researchers concluded that like, uh, because it's common to see training protocols where your blood lactate's over like 10 millimole on the um, interset, like um, training of these intervals, like they're like, so we recommend you also training at 10 millimole. And she was like, that's terrible advice. Don't do it. And I was like, that's the perfect example of like, you guys you, have actually turned me on to her. She's quite funny, actually. Carmen is pretty relentless, but I like, she's yeah, that's, that's why she's funny to me because she's like yeah. relentless <laughs> and very antagonistic about the industry, like yeah. about the research aspect, like, but it's also cool to see because she knows it. Right. I think she, there's like, she is a researcher too, but right. like she has that practical coaching side and she's taught at universities a, for 
so long and like her her students i've talked to a lot of her students but they just a powerful combination now yeah she just like has that really good practical knowledge so she can see some like research papers discussion that says one thing and she's like well they just they just don't know <laughs> that's wrong but or she actually knows how to look at the methods and means of how they came did the research again which we talked about earlier mm -hmm. too it's like oh this is great this is how they accumulated this information and the way they did it's worthless so it just yeah. isn't we don't do that in the, you know it's just like are you guys are you guys the ones that post about the cold tub stuff yeah it's yeah. like oh well like immediately following it's like who does that like who just yeah. like finishes a workout and immediately jump you know what i mean it's like it's such a well you know what I got like the inspo to make some of those cold tub posts because I was literally seeing athletes that I follow on Instagram doing that. And I was like, well, that's wrong. So let me just put out a little bit of information on why uh, um, and see if it bites. Right. But it's like usually, uh, you know, something that I'm posting about is because it, it's a critique of something that I'm seeing. It's not just random things, right? Like, so yeah. there's, especially in speed and power athletes, and especially right now where cold tubbing is really big, um, there's it, it, like people just tend to follow the trend of cold tubs and you can buy them online and so-and-so has a discount code, but they don't really think critically about like what it's actually doing. Yeah. Well, I think what like Wim Hof, we probably have to thank for cold tub immersion, right? Like he's probably made it the most mainstream, the most popular. Mm -hmm, for sure. And he's an impressive specimen altogether, but uh, you know, there's obviously downsides to everything. Yeah, space. he doesn't he doesn't exactly look like how I want to look. And while it may <laughs> sound while it may sound ridiculous, it's certainly something I put in I put value in practically, right? So um, you know, it's like a lot of people, well, you know, you can't just you know, look at weightlifting coaches. They're like old and fat. They're like sitting in chairs. And it's like, yeah, but like most of them actually were accomplished Olympic medalists. They just don't, you know what I mean? It's like, they still have some sort of like practical experience, but yeah. um, maybe we can kind of go ahead and get into and, and finish up with, with form technique and, and uh, what was it? Gate, right. And, and technique. Cause there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, what's the best word to put it? There's a lot of just uh, models that sort of seem to contradict one another. Or I kind of like the way Angus has talked about certain models just form on, or certain models just focus on one specific portion of gait. And they kind of like, they kind of like uh, snapshot a specific part of gait and say, this is how, without looking at like the whole, the whole picture or really just the whole video, right? Because it's not a picture. Yeah. You can't just snapshot one moment in time to like, this is the thing that we're looking for. So, um, because like, even in some of the concepts that I teach with like squatting and lifting technique, which are typically contrary to what is taught mainstream, I also look at like time and like motion. Like, how do we even determine motion? Well, one, one of the ways that we do it is like we use time as a reference right like we we look from this reference point to that reference point and they moved through those different reference points and we use time as a like a frame of reference as well so it's like like even when people when i'm like oh there's no knees out, like don't shove your knees out on the squat it doesn't mean that there's no point during the squat at which your knees are going to deviate laterally it just means that 
there's there's multiple we have to look at multiple phases of this thing from top to bottom and understand that movement is occurring therefore we're gonna see motion like it's and it's there's yeah. gonna be some medial deviation and there's and there's gonna be some lateral deviation and i try to explain why we shouldn't just focus on one of those aspects and i'm, and I'm sure you, i do like that a lot of people have have tried to kind of maybe you guys don't but i do like how some models have sort of tied gate into everything and kind of been like everything is gate if you really look at everything is early mid late it just depends on what part are you looking at and what part are you trying to bias based on management of center of mass and foot contacts and things like this but maybe you guys can go into a little bit of like how you see it what you see maybe versus relative to like other models that maybe you've seen that you think maybe get it right or get it wrong or maybe it's not necessarily right or wrong that they just they see this they see this portion of it very well but they're kind of missing these other parts of it right like i know Goda, for instance a lot of people are like they're not necessarily wrong they're just looking at like one portion of gate but they're kind of missing the other two like they're not looking at the whole phase they're looking at one specific or, or what you know that's just one example or WEC is another one where it's like you know anyways there, there are there are many yeah. mo different models and there there is your there is your very structured linear non i don't want to see any center of mass shift management almost like yeah. super rigid and then there's also like, oh, there needs to be more fluidness. There needs to be more rotate. Like, I guess there's two different camps when I look at gate. There's the anti-rotation camp and there's the rotation camp, really, if you like want to devise it down. You have one camp that goes, there should be minimal rotation. And then you have another camp that goes, no, you know, rotation around, a, a, you know, your center of mass is very important when it comes to like efficiency. But then you have the other camp that goes, that's not efficient. That's wasting energy. And so it's like... How do you, where do you guys sit on that whole thing and, and, and why? Yeah, let's start off like, um, I kind of like Gary, the way Gary Ward describes things in terms of helping people define center. Yeah. Um, he, he, that it, he's like, he probably made, made the biggest impact on me in truly understanding why center of mass is important and like, what yeah. is it and how do we find it? Yeah. And it, and part of like finding center um, involves exploring like both extremes, basically. But I would say the majority of people we see um, have their training involves staying in the middle all the time um, yeah. and having that stiff core, like minimal rotation. Most drills in the weight room, they're told like straight up and down don't let things like deviate laterally or rotate at all. And so, and then you have somewhere like, uh, like Goda who really emphasizes like that look of like supination and external rotation. They might not use those terms. That's what I'm imposing on it. And then you have other people who really emphasize like pronation and internal rotation. And we just use like, drills you can't have like, both <laughs> yeah we we get people to work on kind of both extremes of those and so we'll have like um you know people who seem stuck in a certain direction and you just get them like rotating both ways and working laterally both ways and then their body's able to find like yeah. a better middle ground and I think um, 
what happens often is that people don't have enough variability in their movement. So they're like really loading the same tissues all the time and things get overloaded and irritated. And so if you just restore a little bit more variability than they had before and you let like other things take some of the stress, then they'll be able to be pain-free a lot more often. Yeah, that that has certainly been my experience. And that is my bias when I'm training people is that most tissue related issues come from lack of variability. And they just typically just use the same thing over and over. And I think people underestimate small amounts of degrees of freedom open up a vast amount of options in terms of like variability and access in terms of like just what tissues are used, how much, what are biased and and different things like that. Like I think people think of even a few degrees doesn't make a big difference. And I think it makes a huge difference in terms of like how people self-organize um, and the options that they have access to. Like, that's just my own personal bias. And that's what, like, that's my, I think that's, and, and then I think people also make the assumption that like, oh, but what about flexibility? Because super flexible people get injured too. But if you actually, like, honestly, if you, I think I probably can make one of the biggest uh, arguments here because I have actually not only been incredibly hyper-flexible, I would probably say I have trained many people like that. And believe it or not, super flexible people, at least at how we look at them, don't have a lot of options either. They just have, they just have, they're just really good. Yeah. They're really good at accessing just immediately going into big end range options and not really being able to manage anything in between. Um, you know, the way some people put it is they're, they're able, they're able to access big orientations, but still not having a lot of relative motion between joint segments. They can just make big shapes really, but they can't, they're not very good at, um, you know, like, yeah, they're just not very good at managing anything in between. And like, it's kind of just like, instead of there being a spectrum, they just either go from one end of the spectrum to the other. Whereas like, I find that super stiff people just have no spectrum. Yeah. Um, so, but I would, I would agree but, with uh, that for sure. Yeah. And that ties into how we like to see gait and it doesn't mean that we're like hyper-focused on making it look one way all the time, but when you'll see there's like runners that have a nice flow between those different rotations or like, and you know, people talk about, um, early mid late stance but like external internal external and then you can see a similar thing through swing but then you also see people who look like they're stuck in the same shape all the time time. like it's that yeah internally rotated like foot rotated out whether they're like on the ground or in the air and again i think that's the same things getting loaded and you do see high performers like that and people who've just like adapted to that and loaded to it over time and they can tolerate it but we see a lot of people that are stuck like that and not tolerating it and it just again comes down to like restoring some variation and then it's not like well we're not going to let you run until you can have your foot rotated in through your early swing all the time um it's just like it may be like a couple degrees less than before or something and then do that you, was enough. Do you guys fall into more or less the simplified the camp of like there being sort of two archetypes anyway? 
right? So some people will be like a narrow and a wide. And so basically the difference is one person is just an IR bias and one person is just an ER bias, right? So like, and then there's obviously just a spectrum that exists. Like that's kind of how I, at the end of the day, view movement is just IR and ER. And then, then everything exists on a spectrum in between where some people bias more IR, some people bias EI, more ER. And I think at the highest levels of performance, you're going to see those biases come out more. But then like the, the vast general person is going to probably just fall somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. And so like, that's maybe would explain why like at the highest levels, you're going to see some athletes that are like heavy ER and they seem to do okay. And some athletes are heavy IR that seem to do okay. But anyone in between, they can't really like, if they don't have enough of either one, they just feel like shit because they're just, well, they're in the middle. I don't know if that's something that you kind of like somewhere on there, right? Like for instance, sprinting, you're going to have some sprinters that are very good front side mechanics, probably what's considered more ideal, but then you see some that are more backside mechanics and more front side. I would say people who have access to more internal rotation, generally more global flexion, whereas then some have less more access or bias, more external rotation, the more extended they have less access to IR, but they're so fast, right? If you think of like Michael Johnson compared to like Marcel Jacobs, they're like almost the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of like Marcel Jacobs is very front side. Michael Johnson was very backside, both gold medalists, I believe, or at least world champions, um, you know, but it's kind of like there's a backside. And we, I know you and I have talked about this a lot, Nicholas, and just looking at different videos that compare front side to backside. And, and I think this is still one of the most common arguments is, but I, I think sprinting as a whole is definitely prefers to see more front side, right? Like, yeah. But, well, I think, um, you know, there's a good rationale for why, um, the front side enables like shorter ground contact times, um, which you need for moving quicker, but then, you know, whether there's a trade-off with that in terms of like change of direction ability or something for team sport athletes. I don't know if there's enough out there to say one way or another. You know, I, I've definitely had teammates since I've really started focusing on sprint technique and stuff and running been trying to definitely be way more front side and i've just found i haven't i just think that again it's one of those things that like if you can do both like Mm. when i mass accelerate right if i'm just like trying to take off down the field and i know i'm not going to need to change direction i'm literally just i see an open field and i'm just trying to get to the try zone as fast as i possibly can my mechanics are probably going to be more front side because I'm just trying to be literally as excellent. But if I'm in the middle of the field and I have the ball and I'm looking to pat, like I'm obviously not going to be super front side either. I'm going to be able to now access more backside because I'm going to have to break and change direction or whatever. I think like for most field sport athletes, I could see why like rugby, soccer players, maybe even, maybe even football players would probably have a little bit more backside because it's just, but I think if you actually formally train them, and sprinting and speed, you might be able to see like, oh, there's going to be times where they can access more of the front side mechanics when they need to, and then they can access mm-hmm. access more of the backside mechanics when they need to. It's just like, you know, when it's appropriate, yeah. right? Versus just like that's all they have access to. And then, you know, we had that earlier question of uh, whether the sport was enough, and that just reminds me of like I think it was a soccer study, but like looking if adding sprint training to their regular 
like sport practice would make them quicker and it did um makes sense yeah yeah <laughs> but i also think it just makes you more efficient as a player too from an endurance aspect right because like yeah. if i can run from 50 meter yard line to the 100 meter yard line so many seconds faster than another player i technically can cover the same amount of distance quicker therefore i'm going to be efficient at just covering distance on the field for the total accumulated time of 80 minutes because i'm not only faster when i need to be faster it's, I'm also going to be, it, that's going to automatic, if I, if I can last 80 minutes, I'm still going to cover more distance and more space than somebody else. So like speed is still technically going to make you more efficient at like just total volume of like the needing to cover distance and space, which is like obviously important in team sports, yeah. especially when you play on a hundred yard or a hundred meter field. Like if you can cover more field distance in, in less time for the same energy cost as somebody else, you're going to be a better player. Like, like granted, yeah. like everything else equal, you're just going to be better. You're going to cover more field. You're going to be better defensively. You're going to be better offensively and you're going to be more efficient at, at it all at the same time. So it's like, it just makes sense to me. Why wouldn't it make you a better soccer player? <laughs> if I, you know, if I can accelerate past somebody faster, like you would think yeah. just generally, that's just going to make you better. Right. Like granted all things equal, like tech, te you know, technical skill wise, we're talking like all other things equal. If your technical skill and their technical skill the defender is the same, yet you're a better accelerator because you actually train speed and you train sprinting, you're gonna be better than that. Yep. Makes um, sense to me. I don't know. In terms of the ro rotation too, that is like uh, versus stiffer spine and torso and, and hips. That is something like uh, I believe there's like a lot of good rationale for the rotation um and that's something we like to teach but with that said like and it's something we find people lack and so we have some drills that we like to use that really exaggerate the rotation um to get people used to that but then once they get good at those drills it's like almost then they start to minimize it again um so it's like, okay, I know how to rotate things um, and it feels really exaggerated, but then now how can I like use as little rotation possible for this, whatever speed that I want, but then it's just another like tool that they have access to yeah. instead of a, like a more linear hip extension, hip flexion. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I. I think there's just too much that has seeped over from traditional strength conditioning into sort of like how I think maybe just professionally somehow a lot of strength conditioning coaches also kind of become like technical sport coaches, even though it's not really their realm, right? Like, yeah. um, in this whole stiff spine and like, like I've, I've literally heard guys on my team yell, brace your core when you're running. Yeah. Like, no, do not do that. <laughs> like, please don't do that. <laughs> like, for so many reasons, but it's like that's that belief is still there. I still hear that. You know what I mean? And it's like because somebody told them they need to squeeze their abs when they run. Or you'll hear just like like don't rotate your arms or like swing yeah. your arms like straight yeah. forward and back. And then you end up adopting this like really Well, I just think people also just like, they just don't understand basic physics. And I think like honestly, regardless of whether it's weight room or movement on a field like that. 
I just think people really don't understand management of center of mass and why it's important because like you can rotate around your center of mass really well and be very efficient at it versus I find that people just in general who have less rotation are actually probably less energy efficient because they're, they're always like operating kind of, they can't manage their center of mass. Well, that's my opinion. It takes a lot of energy to like stabilize yourself in those positions. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, hundred percent. It's like, imagine just running down the field, squeezing the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, you know, um, there's uh, <laughs> one drill. What people teach it, it sounds ridiculous to us, but yeah. there's literally going to be people who listen to this. who are like, yeah, I told people to brace their abs when they're sprinting. It's like, Oh my gosh. You know, there's um, a drill and it's not to say there's no utility to it, but like where you have to hold the dowel overhead and then just like, make your way down the track or run down, but not let it move or rotate at all. Oh my God. Like, and maybe there's a benefit to core training with that, but that, that is a huge amount of energy to like resist the movement that your body wants to allow. Yeah. I certainly, I certainly fall into the camp of explore both ends and self-organizing from that and like having options. I, I really just believe in options, especially like even when it comes to ACL stuff, you know what I mean? It's like at the end of the day, I look at ACL tears as the person didn't have rotation, rotational capacity in the knee and that tendon just yield, like, like couldn't yield and it just snapped because yeah. they couldn't rotate the knee. Like if there's no rotation because they've, they've practiced stiff, rigid feet, stiff, rigid core, stiff, rigid, everything that it's like they just they can't even yield to any sort of force whatsoever, no basic movement, even without force. So it's like you wonder why they step in a, a slightly off, you know, portion of the grass and they blow out a knee. It's like because they just didn't have the variability to yeah. handle it, really. They like, didn't bend that way, so they broke. And then so what happens? Like somehow along the way, for the past 20 years, some somewhere along the way, some somebody correlated deep squatting to ACL tears and said, well, we got to stop squatting people deep because, you know, stresses the ACL. And it's like the ACL doesn't even have any tension in a deep squat. <laughs> like, I don't know. So then that's a whole nother thing. But it's like, so then what do you do for 20 years? You teach people to box squat and then they never, they never access the IR aspects of, they never access foot pronation because they've been taught to push their knees out or push their you know, to keep a supinated foot when they squat, which is still taught to this day, spread the floor, grip the ground, don't let your foot move. And then, so then it's like, when you go to make a cut or step on the field, when you need to apply a bunch of force in the ground and things need an IR, you need your foot to pronate. You need a positive shin angle to some degree. You need a little bit of knee flexion. You don't have it because you've literally trained it out of your body in the weight room. So I also do think that, you know, some people are on par with saying that the strength training in some way does affect movement and technique and potentially injury liability on the field, but because of the way they unnaturally force movement in the weight room, I don't really view movement in a weight room any more like any less natural than anything else in terms of like how I want the body to self organize. I don't, I don't like particularly forcing any one, you know, a specific bias in terms of like, like hips should both internally and externally rotate at the appropriate times at various phases of a, of a movement, same with the foot, same with a of shoulder, the same with anything. Like, I, I just don't believe in like, no, we need a limit, especially when it, when you actually break down the three-dimensional aspect of a movement and realize that 
well, all movement at some point is going to need both IR and ER. And so if you just remove one aspect of that from people, it's probably going to cause issues. And, and just in my opinion, and just what I've seen in my bias, internal rotation just seems to be the one that goes missing. And if you look at what most people, what do, you know, you go to your physio, what are most people going to come back and tell you? Oh, I don't have shoulder internal rotation. I don't have hip internal rotation. I don't, you know, and it's like, okay, clamshells. It's like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, but sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that like your, your guys' view, I've always liked how you guys, you do that, how you guys have always just, I think you've just been the most reasonably sound in terms of like it's IR and it's ER, like, and we should train both. Like, it seems like kind of the most yeah. reasonable. And of course, like again, your bias, your population. Like, if you train a bunch of powerlifters that have been taught to extend the shit out of their spine and shove their knees out, you can base just on that population of what's like, like, re- like they're probably going to be lacking a certain thing, right? Like, you can probably just yeah. make that assumption right off the top, like. People say it's always, you can't uh, yeah. it's always easier and like sexier to sell the extremes um, rather than just that's the of, biggest problem. It, with it, it depends, them. but yeah. yeah, we're trying to make the middle sexy. So. <laughs> yeah. And it's like knees over toes, everything. Well, not always. Like, have you ever, yeah. like, yeah, you do want to be able to stop with a, a negative shin angle if you need to change direction running down the field or whatever. It's not always going to be positive shin angle, but. For the past 20 years, we've taught people that positive shin angles are terrible for you. It's like, then we wonder why the second they need to go plant a foot in the ground, they blow out a knee or they tear an Achilles because it's like, it literally has not done that in 20 years. You've, we've literally taught people not to do that. Yeah. It's not a big, it's not like a, it's not, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, and I think that like one of the biggest arguments just from a weight room perspective in terms of just like, proper deadlifting and squatting. Like, I think if you let people do it naturally the way it should be done and you allow for a little variability and deviation and understand that internal rotation is just as important as external rotation at various points and they can do it well, you probably, you know, and then the same when you go to their sport and when you teach running or whatever, just expect to see deviation. And if they lack one, get more of it. And I think that's just like, in my opinion, how people, People are, some people are going to be able to access ER and not access IR. So people are going to access too much IR and no ER. And whichever one they can't do well, get more of it. Yeah. And sometimes it's one thing in one leg and it's another thing in the other leg. And that is very common. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. definitely common. Yeah. And that's, yeah. We, we don't even have to get into that too much. But yeah, that's also very, that's like, especially playing rugby i see that every with every it's like crazy sometimes it's like seeing a black swan you see things and you're like oh yeah like 90 percent of the guys are showing they're very good at one on side and it's just because again we're you know then you get into the whole well we're asymmetrical and we're gonna bias one side and why is it no one on my rugby team is good at passing left yeah, <laughs> you know what i mean like well you know, maybe you're because you're already rotated left so it's just a lot easier to rotate to the side that you're not always already rotated to you know what i mean so but yeah there's that aspect too that you have to take into consideration, but yeah, we're excited to come down in September and kind of teach all this stuff. Cause I do think, um, at least we haven't seen it where, you know, people really, um, give like video examples and specific oh. examples of clients. And then we can specifically go into the practical of individuals in the clinic, um, or in the workshop. And, um, I do think it's kind of like one of its kind, so yeah. it should be really good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, I, 
Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, it's uh, it's easy to cheat like before and after pictures, and especially when you you know not everyone has an eye for things. And I'm not gonna will call out certain groups here, but I see a lot of like uh, pictures for people who don't want that like internal rotation running. But then when they show their after picture, they're like literally looking at a different phase of gait um, yep. where they're not internally rotated anymore. And so, yeah, having videos and uh, actually being able to look at the whole thing slow-mo and go through that will be useful to people, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just think in general, just I think in terms of value, it's just going to be super high value just because it's stuff that people, I just don't think know well, period. Like a general, I, I will, I will confidently say that generally across the field mobility. A lot of people understand mobility. Now mobility's had its spotlight for some time. Now strength is something obviously people have been good at for a while in this field. You know, mobility is, you know, most strength conditioning coach, most every strength conditioning coach now is talking about mobility and how important mobility is and whatever. But I still think conditioning and like understanding how to program it, how to train it, how to train and program both ends of it, you know, conditioning, because we're talking about anaerobic, anaerobic, how to do it, what we're looking for when we look at it. And then the greater context of where do we put it in? How do we focus? I think it's just such valuable information that I think instantly will raise the coaching IQ of, of anyone who takes the course, including myself. I'm looking forward to it a lot because I know I'm going to learn a lot, which makes me then exciting, excited about conditioning. Cause I've always been the guy that's like, you ran a marathon. Good for you. I'm so <laughs> good for you. But yeah. you know, you know, I just know it's a weak point for me, you know? So like yeah. maybe, maybe there'll be things that I'll learn and then I'll be like, okay, I start actually doing it correctly. I start seeing progress. I feel good doing it. I feel like I'm confident in it. Maybe you never know. Maybe Flexible is going to run a marathon at some point. You know, mm -hmm. who freaking knows? I'd love to see it. Try a half first, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Ooh, Nick did. exactly. But yeah, not I just exactly think I, I just maybe not exactly like it, <laughs> but follow my plan exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just think but yeah, we're excited. Conditioning in general is is such a low is such low hanging fruit for people. Um, and doing it well, I just think you guys are going to provide invaluable information, honestly. And so, obviously, as friends, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you guys down here again. But, um, yeah, I, I just think that it's just going to be amazing. I think it's going to be an amazing little seminar. I think there's going to be, it's going to be, there's going to be so much going on that people are just really going to walk away and feel like they got a lot out of it. And so, That's yeah. Cool. Yeah, so tickets... Tickets are on sale. So where, where can where can people buy tickets? I guess we can say when the event is again. Uh, September first yeah. and second. No, Jeff, no? September second and third. Okay, S September second and third. A Saturday and a Sunday. And right now we have tickets on sale on our website, um, which we could probably link in your podcast notes. But it's vitalstrengthphysiology.com. We're going to do an early bird sale um, until July 15th, and then the tickets will go up in price. I think they're currently $750 US on the on the early bird. And we can also be found on Instagram at Vital Strength Physiology. Nick has a different handle, but that will be the easiest way to find both of us really easily. Um, did we catch it all? Mm -hmm. I think we talked about so. everything that we needed to, right? Yep. 
I think so too. Good. So you guys know where to find them. Um, for those that have bought tickets and those who are going to buy tickets, we will see you at the end of August, first of September, that last <laughs> week, that, that bridging weekend. Um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it guys. Thank you. Us too. See you there. Oh, shit.